pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Warner Brothers presents performance with Mick Jagger and Mick Jagger. James Fox and James Fox. This is a film about madness. No soap on the gentleman's collar. Madness and sanity. A film about fantasy. How much did you give him? Two thirds of the big one. Mm, that's insane. The old man was called in the language of Persia. There's nothing wrong with me. I'm normal. <laughs> Sensuality. A film about death. And life. This is a film about vice. And versa. Performance. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Maitland McDonough. It is always a pleasure to be here, and especially a pleasure to be here talking about one of the high points of late 60s, early 70s decadence in the English cinema. Also joining us in the booth is Mr. Ben Slater. I can't believe I'm here, as with Maitland, it's a great pleasure to be here. What's amazing, Mike, is that I first, first suggested we do this podcast or talk about performance 10 years ago, after we did the St. Jack episode, um, I emailed you and said, can we do another one? You said, sure, what would you like to talk about? I said, I'd love to talk about performance, and then I didn't hear it from you again until earlier this year almost 10 years later, and I've just been sitting here waiting, Mike, waiting for you to email me, and now I'm here. 
I've done nothing for 10 years except wait for this podcast. Luckily, this is a request from one of our listeners. This is Jordan Nash has requested this one. And between you asking for it and your your name was on the list. And then I knew Maitland had talked about writing a book about it. So I was just like, all right, here we go. Yeah, 10 years later, we are finally doing it. So on this episode, we are looking at Nick Rogue and Donald Camel's performance. Released in 1970, the film is the story of a gangster, played by James Fox, who kills an old friend and goes into hiding at the Chateau of a Rockstar, played by Mick Jagger. Rogue was coming to the film as a cinematographer, while Camel was a writer. He also wrote this one, as well as co-directed with Rogue, pulling double duty as DP. We will be discussing duality a lot in this episode, as well as doing our best to untangle this film. I'd say that we're spoiling things, but this might be another one of those where you listen to this episode first, and then you watch the film. You can do whatever you want, though. Whatever order. I'm not going to dictate to you. Maitland, when was the first time you saw performance, and what did you think? I'm not exactly sure when I first saw performance. I know I saw it relatively early on, but I clearly could not have seen it in 1970 because I was 12 in 1970. No matter how precocious my film tastes were, I cannot see them having led me to whatever cinema in New York might have been playing performance then, despite the fact that, of course, I was a huge Rolling Stones fan, even even as a kid. I don't see that happening. And I'll tell you, one of the reasons I was a Stones fan was that my mother was a Beatles fan. And that wasn't a complete rejection of my mother or anything, but it was that I grew up on the Beatles and that, that you know, that, that's a particular sound. And the Beatles were great rock artists, but I think I was looking for something different to distinguish my own tastes from that of my mother. I mean, I had a really very progressive music upbringing because my mother was completely into all of the British. My mother was English. So all the British sounds were a really big thing for her. She saw the Beatles at Shea. That was a big part of my upbringing. And look, what do you do when you want to get away from that? You embrace dirty, nasty Mick Jagger and those crude, lewd Rolling Stones, right? And, and then you go for David Bowie and all the androgyny. That was my way of coming to it. So yeah, Jagger was absolutely, for me, the first appeal of performance. And Ben, how about yourself? Well, I can tell you exactly when I saw it, and almost to the day, or I won't detail, but I saw it when it was shown on British television in 1991, and it was shown as part of a season of films, I think it was on Sunday evenings, that was called Movie Drone, and it was fronted by the filmmaker Alex Cox. Every week he would use one of these films, and essentially they were kind of cult movies, that was what unified them. And performance was quite early on, I think, in the run of Movie Drone. And it was a film I'd read about as a sort of film, but, and it was really boring. And when it finally showed up on Brevi, it was an incredible thing. Was 17, 16, 17. And, uh, it absolutely blew my mind. And it's interesting, made them talk about kind of background in terms of her. Uh, position on youth culture and music because any young person growing up in the late 80s early 90s in England we were all absolutely obsessed with the 1960s 1960s music 1960s fashion 1960s drug use all aspects of kind of popular and counterculture the 60s what we were harking back back to we were kind of nostalgic for a time when we hadn't been alive 
and watching performance, it seemed to completely epitomize the 60s in all the, the positive elements, all the exciting elements, but also the dark, mysterious undercurrents of the 60s, which were just as compelling as all the exciting creative parts. So that was an amazing introduction to the film, and I've you know, basically been obsessed with it ever since. First, Ben, I have to say you're killing me <laughs> because of the obvious interest in our difference in our ages. But you're also making me think of you know one of my most vivid memories of my mother, which is my mother in what was basically a Carnaby Street mini dress. Uh, so, yeah, the idea that my mom was more or less one of those girls, and that to you is so far in the past is quite sobering. Well, you know, it wasn't that far in the past. You know, it was, it, it was only 20, I mean, really, it was almost like the film had come out in 1970, so it was only about 20, 20 over years ago before I saw it in 91. But it felt like a really long time ago. But we all wanted to look like, you know, Mick Jagger. And actually, one of the interesting points that Alex Cox made in his introduction to performance was the idea that each era since the release of the film finds either Chaz uh, or Turner the, the cooler character. And he was said to one that Turner, the Mick Jagger character, is the cooler character for that time. But I think that Chaz is in some ways become a very cool character since then. Um, and that's something maybe we can discuss at some point. I think we could definitely discuss that apropos British gangster films generally, and particularly the more recent British gangster films, because the shadow of Chaz hangs over so many characters. You know, Mike was talking about spoilers. You know, it's hard to talk about performance without talking about the fact that it is one of the most radical left turns in narrative cinema in the sense that it begins as a gangster movie and not just any gangster movie, it essentially invents the British gangster movie as a genre. Or, uh, yeah, as Maitland said, incredibly influential in that first sort of 45 minutes. And then it becomes an entirely different film, or more or less. The gangster film haunts the second half of the film, but then it, it turns into another genre. Ironically, I think I saw this the same year that you saw this, Ben. I rented this or a friend of mine rented this because oh my god there's a movie with mick jagger in it that isn't free jack oh he actually had a, a movie career before this so let's go and watch performance and let's go and watch it for mick jagger which is really a bad way of watching this movie you do not want to be watching this movie just because mick jagger is in it just because and we'll talk about this a little bit more later on, just because Mick Jagger doesn't show up for a while. He's kind of here and there during the first, like, 40 minutes, but it really takes a long time for him to properly be in the movie. And by that time, my buddy Mitch and I were just like, where the fuck is Jagger? He comes in, he spray paints this thing, he's, like, in a little shot over here, but where's Jagger at? I I, I didn't sign up for this, you know, James Fox character. Who? Where's Mick Jagger? Because in the box, at the, the video box and everything, it was just Jagger all over the place. It wasn't that, like, four-panel poster that we have with Fox and Jagger. It was just Mick Jagger sitting at the desk as Turner doing the whole memo to Turner thing made it look like this is all Mick Jagger all the time. So I was a little disappointed the very first time I saw this, but I'm very glad that we are doing this episode now because this is one of those kind of puzzle films that I so enjoy talking about on here. 
I also have to admit that, I mean, James Fox is ab- would have been an absolute draw for me at certain points. I don't know exactly how to pinpoint when James Fox really came into my consciousness. But once he did, any movie with James Fox in it was a movie I would watch because I'm sorry, he was hot as he was incredibly hot. I mean, he, without being a conventional movie sex symbol, I mean, yes, he was a handsome man and no two ways about it, but he had a very odd reserved manner to him that was, I think, different from the reserve that certain other English actors had. There was always something furtive about him, as though he had some kind of nasty secret that you really didn't want you to know or some such thing. And I found that really fascinating. I wanted to to figure out what the mystery was. And this is a movie that absolutely plays on that in every way. There's a lot of backstory for Chaz that we're trying to figure out as this movie's going on. I mean, the relationship between he and uh, I'm trying to remember the character's name. Is it um, is it Dennis, the, the the guy that they're trying to take over his business? And that whole, oh, you don't go near this guy. I'll, I'll take care of him, says his boss, Harry Flowers. Don't mess with this guy at all. And then he does have to do that. And there's this whole S&M type scene of these characters together. It's like, okay, yeah, they definitely have a past here. In fact, that whole S&M thing is such a thing about this film. Uh, there is no getting away from it at any point. And part of it is really tied to First of all, the history of gangster movies generally, because there is a great deal of sadism in them. And yet you, there are also a lot of characters who are there to take it for the team, for their families, for their neighborhoods. You know, they're willing to be the sacrificial lambs and to take the beatings and uh, being shot and being outcast and being tormented. So all of that is you, know, you can see that back there in American gangster movies of the 1930s. But it is all of the latent sadomasochism of it, it comes up to the, it doesn't come up to the surface. It is shoved up to the surface. It, it's like lava <laughs> bubbling up under every floor that anybody walks on. And it's, it, it is definitely one of the things that makes it such compelling watching, particularly if it's somebody who has always liked gangster movies and has seen a lot of them, to see something that was always subtext. And you probably at some point realized it was there brought right up to the surface to boil and hiss and climb up people's legs. It's great. I wanted to ask you guys how familiar you are with the Cray brothers, which were a very key kind of historical point of reference for the film. I mostly know them through movies, um, through the, the guys from Spandau Ballet when they were in the craze. And then the Tom Hardy movie that was out a few years ago. What was that legend? I think it was where he played both of the Cray brothers but that's about my extent of it is the more of the fictionalized version of the craze than the actual craze themselves. I want to say that some Monty Python, uh, when they're the whole Arthur Dimsdale skit, I think that that has a lot to do with the uh, gangsters uh, of London at the time. I oh, know Doug and Dimsdale Piranha are definitely Ron and Reg. <laughs> I walked out with Dinsdale on many occasions, and I found him a charming and erudite companion. He was meant to introduce one to eminent celebrities, celebrated American singers, members of the aristocracy, and other gang leaders. Oh, how had he met them? Through his wonderful work for charity. 
He took a warm interest in boys' clubs, cedar zooms, choristers' associations, and the Grenadier Guards. Was there anything unusual about him? I should bleeding well say not, except that Dinsdale was convinced that he was being watched by a giant edgehog, whom he referred to as Spiny Norman. The key figure here is Roddy Cray, you know, who was one of the Cray brothers, who was, you know, very well known to be queer. And so this idea of this real tough guy, you know, famous photographs of them boxing, powerful, violent, dangerous, and yet also kind of widely known to be gay, was quite a radical and interesting thing at the time. And I think Camel, who was very interested in different kinds of sexuality, was really fascinated by this idea of the gay gangster. And it was something he kept on going on about and kept on trying to bring into the into the film. Even when the gangsters he was working, kind of using as research were really quite against it. They really didn't want to do it. And in fact, of course, it did become a point of contention, especially with Warner Brothers, that there was too much of that. And he was being asked to tone it down, essentially. But the the scene where Chaz goes back to his apartment and Joe and a couple of his henchmen are waiting for him, um, which is the scene you guys were referring to, that is a very intensely homoerotic sequence. And in the script, in one of the original script drafts that, that Mike had dug up, there is a supposed to be a moment where uh, one of Joey's sidekicks sort of comes comes into the room and he's dressed in leather. And it's described as a leather boy, which, of course, comes up as a reference later in the memo from Turner song. And, of course, there's the whipping and the beating aspects, all of which get somewhat played down in the, in the actual film. But Camel really wanted to push that as far as he could go. And I think it's fair to say that Camel pushed it pretty far in performance for a movie made at the time at which it was made, when still homosexuality of alluded to or spoken about directly in American and British cinema was a thing. And it was a thing that was, I think, by and large, contained by problem movies. Okay. And problem movies are what they are. They're movies where it's a problem and it's all about, you know, either how the person who has this problem overcomes it or the person who has this problem is destroyed by it. You know, most movies about that subject came out on one side or the other. And while performance, I think, is not absolutely direct about its homoerotic content, there is absolutely no missing it unless you just don't have a clue. And even more than when performance was first made, I think it's pretty hard to look at performance now and not see exactly what's going on there and what the relationship between between Turner and this character is it's homoerotic all the way around it doesn't matter that Turner's surrounded by girls including the girl who looks like a boy which is something that they do mention it's a very sexually fluid and ambivalent film that on the one hand is very much a part of the 60s cinema it was coming out of but on the other hand was still something that was pretty radical in a movie that wasn't about a a hippie subculture. Hippie subculture movies yeah, often touched on this kind of subject, but this was a gangster pick, and, and that, that's certainly what it looked like by any outside standard, and I think most people, when they came to see a gangster picture, didn't expect to see that. I mean, the S&M scene looks like it was directed by Kenneth Anger, 
You know, it's that type of scene. And then it's funny because we're talking about homosexuality in gangster movies, and the one that immediately popped to mind was I'll Sleep When I'm Dead, which all hinges upon uh, sodomizing, Malcolm McDowell sodomizing Jonathan Rhys Myers in that. And I was just like, wow, you know, you're now in 2003, it's like, this is pretty damn blatant what's going on here, as opposed to, you know, 40, 30 years prior where. Mm, will they won't they yes maybe and yeah to your point maitland now you watch it and you're just like oh yeah this is as obvious as the nose on my face again you know, it, it, it's clear even in movies from the 30s i mean there were always girls in them and those girls are always so peripheral they're window dressing because those movies are all about the men and those men's relationship with other men and about men being dominant over or submissive to other men because that's the, that's the whole story of gangster movies right you're either the top dog or the underdog and the under is is very clearly alluding not just to the fact that you've been defeated by having your business taken or your territory occupied you are literally under the other guy and he he has you on on your back there and that's something, again, that just is completely on the surface in this film. And yet in this extremely dreamy, I won't quite say it's hallucinogenic, but there, there is an otherworldliness to the, to the atmosphere of performance, even at the same time that it was shot on real locations, could be described as a very realistic movie within the context of genre. There is something otherworldly about it as well, because... Ultimately, it's a movie that doesn't open out, it closes in. And everything, at first it's everything is happening in that neighborhood, and then it's everything is happening in that house. And then it's everything is happening in people's heads, and then it's everything is happening in one person's head, which leads to that shot that I'm sure we'll be talking about later. It isn't just about power in that conventional sense of who's on top. In a way, that's the world that Chaz comes from. Chaz comes from a world where you've got to be top dog. You've got to be the top performer. And then when he enters Turner's world, or Turner and Ferber's world in a way, because they're both sort of co-directing that, that's when power and getting a sense of where the power is becomes a lot more fluid. And uh, as you say, it made it a lot more dreamy. And I, I, I was thinking about, in a way... The arc, I mean, in a way, Chaz is, is the protagonist of the film. It's his journey from beginning to end. And his arc is traced through sexual scenes or the sexuality of the character. From the very beginning of the film, when he's having this kind of rough sex with his girlfriend, his kind of gangster's floozy, very kind of traditional. She's a showgirl that he's obviously picked up for possibly a one-night stand. And they have kind of slightly violent, you know, quite rough sex. And then all the way through, at the end of the film, he has a kind of tender, quite sweet, quite equitable relationship, briefly, albeit, with uh, the character Lucy, played by Michel Breton. And he seems to kind of become a nicer person, basically. So there's an odd kind of morality in that Camel, I believe it's very much Camel, has sort of imposed on it, where you begin with the violence and the narcissism, and then you move through Turner and Ferber guiding Chaz, he becomes a better person who's kind of more free and more in touch with his sexuality. And that possibility, of course, that he might have sex with Turner as well. The other great thing about that entire arc is that the girl 
who is the girl in this journey is not Ferber, who is the girl who is a conventional hot girl of that period. It's Lucy, who looks like a little boy. Yeah, and is 17 years old. Which, of course, was not such a big deal then, which is something I often find myself talking to people about when you look at movies made in the 70s. There's a lot of people are just shocked by how young characters and, and sometimes actors as well, but characters certainly, how young they are when they're doing all kinds of things. I, I, I don't want to say that we're more prudish now, except that I think we are. We're, we're living in a more prudish society than the one in which I grew up. And I'm not sure that that's a criticism one way or the other. I can't wholeheartedly say it was really great that in the 70s, it was really okay for 15-year-olds to be having sex with people who were legally adults. Although you also have to say, okay, so you just turned 18 and you're legally an adult. How different are you from that 15 or 16-year-old? Not a whole lot, right? It's just a matter of the legal age of majority for a lot of people. I, lots of us at the age of 18 or 19 were still teenage dumbasses. But that's a different conversation, I guess. And yet one that inflects this. <laughs> this is still the era where you can be sent to the war when you're 18, but you can't actually vote in an election. At least in the U.S., you couldn't vote at this time. So, yeah, good luck with that. Yeah, a nice paradox of that time, and one that certainly was very much a part of the counterculture's argument. In the long litany of what the hell is wrong with us as a country? Yeah, you're not old enough to vote, but we can send you to Vietnam to die. Definitely a problem there. What we've talked about is pretty straightforward. You know, there's a gangster, he gets into trouble, his bosses are after him, he needs to hide out, he goes, he finds a flat, he hears about this flat. Uh, owned by this rock star, Turner, who's very reclusive. He goes, he lives at, in Turner's world. Eventually, the gangsters find out where he is, and they come and they get him. End of story. It's the way that this story is told that is most of the interest of this. I mean, the story is great, but the actual way that it is told is a very unusual way. And we've talked about Rogue on this show before, and his editing style, or the editing style of the movies that he directs, and this is definitely right there with this. This whole way of things being cross-cut, the way that things are being manipulated, this goes farther than a lot of things that I've even seen Rogue do. The way that, you know, we've got Harry Flowers at one point talking, and then the color starts to desaturate, and we're cutting over to a jury, and the jury is seeing this uh, stag film, and it's being kind of projected onto them. The way the camera's pulling back on Flowers, and just... There are cuts going on so much through this. Even that opening that you're talking about, it's not just him having sex with his girlfriend, Chaz having sex with a girl. It is him in the back of a limo, or maybe we're supposed to imply that it's a limo or or that he's in the back of it because we're cutting from the outside of the limo to them having sex. So I just am implying in my mind that, that they're in on the inside of it but maybe they're not. And then you also have these weird electronic noises all playing at the same time. There's a moment, I think it's towards the beginning of the film where the sound just cuts out completely. And I was like, Oh shit, I've got a bad copy of this. I need to you know, send it back or get a new one. And then the audio comes back. And I was like, is that in every version of this? And I had to go out and find different versions. I'm like, yeah, sure enough. This is just the way that this movie is. The sound just cuts out for a little bit and then comes back. 
weird things like even the very first shot of this being uh, uh, like a jet airplane, like an air fighter. And you're like, okay, I'm not exactly sure why this is here, but it's definitely setting me up to start to think about things a lot differently than I would just a normal straight ahead ABC type narrative. There's a little scene before we even get into what this movie is going to be all about that I find absolutely fascinating. And when I saw it again this time, I, I, I thought, you know, that's a scene that barely has, it's a scene that has to be there because it's how Chaz finds out that there's an apartment for rent. But the specifics of that scene are really interesting to me because it, he's in a, he's in a cafe and he knows he has to find some place to go. He's pretty desperate. And he just overhears a conversation between a young man and his mother. And I find the young man and his mother really interesting characters because the young man is, is a biracial man. His mother is the absolute, if you wanted to find a picture of a sweet old English lady who's a mom, that would be his mother. The character's name is Neil. And the conversation between Neil and his mom became more and more interesting to me because the fact is that it's not about any of the things that I think a lot of people, a lot of viewers, and a lot of filmmakers would have seized upon in that relationship, which was that he is the biracial son, a musician who's been living in some dodgy squat someplace in Notting Hill, and she is the little old English lady that you would see in a tea shop, having a cup of tea and crocheting a doily. And there is absolutely nothing unusual about it. It's just Neil and his mom. And Chaz is fortunate enough to overhear a little bit of something that leads him to Turner's apartment. But it, it struck me very much this time. What a lovely scene that is. And a scene that could easily have been different, could easily have been so much less interesting. Both the actors there are, are, are ADR'd. I believe the voice of Noel is actually Ian McShane. Seriously? Wow. Yeah. I mean, that is, that is, it's widely attributed that that was, that was Ian McShane. And I also love the moment before where Chaz is getting the drink served and the waitress comes in in slow motion. It's the first time I think there's been any slow motion in the film. It suddenly goes into slow mo. It kind of just shows the playfulness of the technique, the fact they can really use anything. I mean, Mike was talking about cutting out the sound. I mean, I think Jean-Luc Godard was a big influence on Camel, particularly, and that's a classic Godardian trick to kind of pull the sound out and then drop it back in just to really disrupt the experience. And there's a, so much of that technique being used, so many of these little tricks and gimmicks, uh, and then, of course, the ADR and, and using other people's voices gives it that very dreamy feel. But yeah, absolutely, Maiden. I love that dialogue as well. It's a very sweet little dialogue between this Jimi Hendrix-like rocker and his very sweet old lady mum. And it has a lot of humanity to it, even though on the surface it should just be a very basic bit of exposition that helps us as an audience figure out how Chaz gets to Turner's house. A really good double feature with this movie, and not that I can recommend this movie, but would be One Plus One or Sympathy for the Devil, the 1968 Godard film, where he has the Rolling Stones in there. And it's kind of the 
the story of the the song, I guess. It's kind of like how they actually recorded it. But then you get all of these cross-cutting with like the uh, the Last Poets. You know, you've got Frankie Diamond in here, and then you've got Diamond and the Last Poets on the actual soundtrack of uh, uh, performance. And it, I mean, performance was shot in '68. One plus one is shot in '68 or maybe '67. But it feels like they are of a piece together. It feels like the two movies were, if not made back to back, it feels like they were very much of the of the same mindset. And especially this whole idea of just cross-cutting like crazy. And so, yeah, I can definitely see Godard having a, a major influence on this. Let's talk about the editing, because that whole thing, I mean, just like you, Mike, when I first saw the film, I was much more familiar with, with Nick Rogue as a filmmaker than I was with Camel. And so I assumed, okay, this is Rogue already hit the ground running, this whole intercutting, cross-cutting, that very kind of complex, intricate methods of cutting around, disrupting narrative flow deliberately with his cutting. I assumed, okay, that this is rogue style, um, and you know, because I just really there that much about Camel, but there is a sort of long story about how the editing came to be, and supposedly a lot of it really was Camel. It, it was, it was, it was a lot of the things that he brought to the table. Um, there's a lot of debate about who's really the author of that style of that editing and how it came to be. But at the end of the day, Camel was a big part of it. You can sort of see it in the scripts and the way he notated them, that he had very clear ideas about how scenes were being cut. And then when the studio said, we need Mick Jagger to come into the film earlier, they essentially had to trim the gangster section, which was supposed to be about an hour long, and take sort of 15 or 20 minutes off it, which forced them to really compress those gangster sequences cut out everything that wasn't necessary and make them really intense. And that makes the film have a quite an odd pace in terms of the intensity of the gangster sequences, that first 45 minutes, with all of those tricks and techniques like you were talking about with the, where the jury becomes the audience in the porn cinema, which was obviously designed, that was you know clearly designed, not just part of the edit. And then later when we get uh, to Power Square, everything starts to breathe and slow down and it's still very trippy and dreamy and strange and they're still kind of cutting around, but it changes again. Supposedly, it was the final cut of the film, which was by Donald Camel himself with this really interesting guy called Frank Mazzola who had worked on Rebel Without a Cause as a gang consultant and then eventually became an editor, which led to that the kind of creation of that style but there are other versions of that story where actually the original editors had a lot of input in it and actually one thing that makes me question the sort of mythology of the edit is the fact that that intercutting style was something that you see quite a lot of filmmakers doing in the late 1960s and certainly by the time performance comes out 71 you're seeing a lot of other films using that technique I mean, of course, Point Blank, which came out in 67, had already started using it. And Camel had seen Point Blank and absolutely loved it and had made the cast go and see it because he said, this is a film that I really want to use as an influence. So it wasn't entirely original. What's interesting is it seems that Nick Rogue, who wasn't actually that involved in the edit, then later went on and absorbed a lot of those techniques 
and they became really part of what we would call a kind of Rogian film language in more or less every subsequent Nick Rogue film. One of the things that I love about performance is that it's such a transitional film. It's a film that is so looking forward to things to come, but also firmly rooted in things that other filmmakers were already doing. They weren't doing entire films that way, but they were doing sequences. They were they were experimenting with what you could do in film editing because one of the things about the late 60s especially was popular culture, youth culture, they, all kinds of things were beginning to seep into mainstream movie making because it, basically for commercial reasons. Yeah, studio heads... Filmmakers themselves were looking at the people who were going to movies and, and they were absolutely thinking, well, the culture is changing in certain ways and we either change with it or we get left behind. You know, I don't think anybody sat in a room with other other filmmakers and said that specifically, but I think they could all see it, that either they dealt with this youth culture thing that was happening or they risked becoming irrelevant. The whole idea of this kind of flash cut editing, I mean, as soon as you mention that, I'm thinking of things like Bonnie and Clyde or the transitions shots in Easy Rider, where you just kind of go back and forth in time before you kind of switch from one timeline to another. But this is much more radical to me. This is much more, I mean, you know, we talked recently about uh, The Conformist and uh, The Night Porter and just the way that those stories were told in a very nonlinear fashion. And this one is right there. You know, you're moving through time and through space, but it's also very much kind of a, um, the internal view from the characters. You know, the, the way that Chaz is experiencing the world is very much how we are seeing it, the way that it's being reflected. You know, the, the, the shots of Harry Flowers that I was talking about very much to me seems like we are inside of Chaz's head at that point. It's not just here's a way of telling the story. It's also here's a way of, not necessarily POV shots, but definitely giving you the feel of what these characters are experiencing. I also think that you just have to say outright that performance is a movie that is extremely inflected by the drug culture of the 60s. This is a movie that could not have been made by people who didn't do a lot of drugs. Doing a lot of drugs, whatever the pluses and minuses of that practice was for various people at various times in various places absolutely gave you a different way of looking at things. And that goes all the way back to Aldous Huxley. So it's not as though it was a new thing in the 60s. You know, the whole the doors of perception thing is a very real thing. If you take mind-altering drugs, they definitely not only alter your mind when you're actually high, but by and large also give you a memory of what it was like to see things in a dramatically different way from the way you see things when you're in your normal, everyday, regular mind. And you, there are lots of very bad paths you can go down under those circumstances. But there are also ways in which those experiences can absolutely open up your creativity, if you're a creative person, and make you look at the way you do what you're doing, whether you're a writer, a filmmaker, a painter, a costume designer, it can just make you look at things in a different way. And that influence is extremely evident in movies of the mid-60s into the 70s. Not necessarily mainstream Hollywood movies, although you see it there too, but you see it in a lesser sense. 
But in movies like Performance, which were made outside that system and had the opportunity to really do that, open up you know the, the corners of your mind thing going on, it is absolutely the cornerstone of the way that movie communicates. This whole idea of people changing places, merging, separating, it's not just there because of the drug culture. I don't see Igmar Bergman dropping acid too much or taking mushrooms, but I mean, so much of this is right out of persona as well. It just feels like this whole idea of the two people, you know, switching places, becoming one person, all those kind of things. It, it feels like that's very much of the time. I mean, this also feels a lot like seconds to me as well. This whole idea of, is he the young man? Is he the old man? You know, who is Rock Hudson in that movie? Is he an old person in a young person's body? Is, has he taken over this body? You know, what is that person doing? And I think when we talked about seconds, we even talked about face of another. There's this whole idea of like just being able to switch places because of your face. And this feels very much like that as well as the Chaz and the Turner characters start to merge and then diverge. The other reference that it makes me think of as well, which is it has a definite point in terms of merging, is Patrick McGowan's The Prisoner TV series which had just finished its run early in 68. So it's very likely that Camel or Rogue had seen it. Uh, and I would think more likely Camel, because, of course, by the time you get to the last couple of episodes, it has become extremely trippy if it wasn't already. And that the penultimate episode is essentially just, uh, you know, number six and number two locked in a room having a kind of mind game conversation that goes on for ages. And then in the final episode... You know, num number six, our protagonist, who is a kind of action figure, hard man from genre, who's now plunged into a strange, weird world in which nothing can be trusted and nothing is true, much like Chaz in a way in performance, then discovers that the person who's been trying to have power over him, number two, is in fact himself. And so you do get that merging again. So I'm always reminded a little bit of that at the end of performance when Turner and Chaz become the same person and also thinking of it as a kind of another highly psychedelic kind of reference point that possibly was in the ether when they were making performance. You, you have to talk about the way that the prisoner came out of Danger Man and out of that a very traditional spy story that then transitioned into what started out looking quite conventional and then yes became this incredibly psychedelic mind-blowing what is the nature of identity and what is my place in the world and how do i understand my position when the reality around me keeps changing thing so that was and that that was clearly part of a larger cultural continuum that you went from a straightforward spy story to a spy story that was completely about who in the hell am I? What in the hell am I doing? And what is my place in the world overall? Performance absolutely is the logical extension of that. That finale of The Prisoner is a real mindfuck. And though I always thought that they were telegraphing who number one was, but in the opening credits where he's just like, who's number one? You are number six. And I'm just like, you are comma number six or you are 
number six. Is he telling him he's number six or is he telling him you are number one, but we're going to call you number six? You know, just that comma seemed that 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 pause always gave me pause. Who is number one? You are number six. Yeah. The other thing I was going to say just off this point is, you know, the way we're talking about it is this psychedelic experience and almost slightly abstract kind of story. And yet it's really worth remembering that particularly the gangster half or the gangster first section of the film is really grounded in extremely authentic research into uh, the criminal underworld of London at that time uh, to the point that Camel himself and James Fox are immersing themselves in the world of actual London East End they didn't really call themselves gangsters because that was just seen as very American. I mean, the term would become known as villains or just the lads uh, who would be hanging around in the pubs and in the gyms at that time were associated with the Cray brothers, associated with the Richardsons. And they were really getting into that world at a very deep level. There's rumors that James Fox actually went out with the guys uh, on jobs. He's sort of denied that since then. But he certainly knew a bunch of them. And then actually some of them are in the film as well. So John Binden, who plays Moody, the very stocky guy, is an absolutely notorious figure who was a kind of thug and enforcer, um, who was associated with the Cray brothers. Um, really interesting guy. He had a little bit of a film career. He worked with Ken Loach on Paul, Paul Cow before this. And uh, then there's another actor, Billy Murray, who plays Stevie, the one who's supposed to dress up in leather uh, during the fight with Chaz, he was also a pretty well-known criminal at the time. So these were men of violence that were very involved in the film. And Chaz is modelled on a real-life figure who was a sort of freelance enforcer uh, whose name was Jimmy Evans, who was a friend or an associate, at least, of Camel and a key figure who is credited on the film, a guy called David David Litvinov, who was a sort of really interesting man who was able to move between the worlds of art, show business, and violent crime, and sort of almost seamlessly kind of stitch those worlds together. And weirdly enough, it was a very small world, this world, where rock stars, movie stars, film directors, and gangsters all would hang out, and artists and designers. And a lot of these people in the making of performance all knew each other, known each other for some years. And I think as, a, as an American, I have to chip in with, well, that's partly because it was just a much smaller world. America is a much bigger country. And, you know, in the UK... It's it's a smaller world. So the idea that that kind of intersection between gangsters, filmmakers, artists, musicians would be there seems more natural in a way. Not saying that every artist in, in the UK consorted with people who were part of organized crime, but just that it's a smaller world. Well, it reminds me a little bit of Mickey Cohen and Johnny Stompanato going out with Lana Turner and just those worlds were intersecting at that point. Of course, you know, we can't talk about adult films without talking about the mob as well, but that's a whole different milieu that that those undergrounds 
really converged, especially when it came to the money. You know, you're, you're making money off of this adult films thing. Okay. We want a cut of this, but yeah, that whole idea, the glamour, if it did happen, I, I associate it with much more of like forties and fifties than I do the eighties, the nineties, the sixties, even. It just feels like those two worlds were separate by that time. Other than, you know, like maybe going out to Vegas and all of the Vegas performers and just how they had to rub elbows with the mobsters as well. And some of them really got off on it. Yeah. Gangsters have always loved movie stars and to some extent, you know, vice versa, which was a tagline for performance at one point on its U.S. release. But yeah, it, it, but it was amazing to me to do a bit of research into the film and find out that Camel had known David Lipmanoff since he was a teenager. James Fox had known him as well from just being in London. Camel had known Rogue uh, when he was a painter and just going to visit the, the film studios where Rogue was basically a clapper boy. James Fox had known Mick Jagger already. Uh, he'd known him for a couple of years. There was a lot going on in the 60s, um, and they were all bumping into each other. And in a way, I suppose that's why the film has this amazing ability to epitomize the 60s, because it's very honest about this collage of references and influences and the way they all kind of bash against each other. And it pulls off quite a miracle in being able to tell a more or less coherent story with all of these references and ideas very much on the surface. Um, they're not hidden. In a way, the subtext is there, but there's so much that is there for you to see in terms of references. You know, there's references to William Burroughs. There's references to Borges. Underneath the surface, there's Artaud. There's Jean Genet. There's, of course, all the visual art on display. The references to Bacon. Uh, there's the Magritte painting. Um, it's all there. You know, there's a whole reading list uh, and kind of viewing list on screen if you want to see it. You mentioned, too, Maitland, this whole idea of the Rolling Stones were the bad boys. And they were getting to a lot of shit at this time. I mean, I don't remember when Altamont was, but that was such a black eye for them. There was all of the mystery around Brian Jones and what was going on with him. And it feels like, uh, if memory serves, Jones and Camel were also pretty tight at one point, too. Yeah, absolutely. And then that takes you back to the whole Beatles versus the Stones thing. You know, the Beatles were the good boys and the Stones were the bad boys. And, of course, the Beatles weren't involved in Altamont. And, of course, the Stones were because that was just the way it had to be. I think a lot of that has to do with a splintering of popular music at that time. I mean, for a long time, popular, popular music really was controlled by money men. And they understood how to keep their artists under control. Once you got into the mid-60s, the money men weren't quite so able to keep their artists under control, in part because the voice of the audiences became more powerful. And, and the idea that a, a studio or an ad agency or whatever entity you wanted to talk about could create a false front, it could, could create an image for somebody and that that image would, would withstand any kind of collision with that person's actual behavior. If that person behaved badly, your guys could come in and they could fix it up and erase it and make it something that wouldn't affect public perception and, in turn, sales of your product. Once we got deeply into the 60s, 
musicians in particular, and movie stars as well, kind of went off the reservation and started doing the things they did, regardless of the larger structures that were controlling them, the studios, the record companies. And some of them foundered on that. And some of them did just fine. I mean, look at Dennis Hopper. Dennis Hopper was the studio effing nightmare. He was a huge problem from beginning to end. And it's true, he never became a studio star. But Dennis Hopper was an artist who worked and worked and worked because he was great at what he did. People came to see him in movies. He he was a moneymaker for the studio. He might not have been the above the above the title star, but he had a position within that hierarchy. And the fact that he was able to put butts in seats absolutely superseded whatever the issues were with the fact that he was openly a pot smoker and a hippie kind of guy. It, it, it was a commercial fact that the bad things absolutely were superseded by the fact that he worked commercially. And that was very much a thing of that era, that that, that late 60s, early 70s. Well, Warner Brothers, when you know when this project was brought to them, the idea that Mick Jagger would be in it, which was always the case, you know, Camel always wanted Jagger to play the rock star role, even in earlier versions of the story. Warner Brothers were absolutely desperate to get into business with Mick Jagger. He'd never acted in a in a in a feature film before. There was even talk about him sort of becoming. Uh, on the payroll, on the studio payroll, a kind of consultant of youth culture for them as a sort of sweetener to get him to definitely do the film. None of these things came to pass in the end. So there was that tension where, you know, the studios wanted the counterculture, they wanted the pop star who was massive, and then at the same time they couldn't quite cope with the, with the results of it. But in terms of that 60s context, Mike, we were talking about the, the crazy stuff that was happening with the Stones. Yes, absolutely. There was all sorts of stuff going on. So the year before they shot performance, there had been this infamous drug bust of the house where the Stones were hanging out, which was Keith's house, I think, in Redlands, uh, where the police had raided it during a party. Um, and there were a lot of tabloid stories about what was actually happening inside the house. The most famous rumor being one involving a Mars bar and Marion Faithful. Do I need to go into details? I hope not. But uh, there is a reference to that in performance, which is when Chaz goes to the house in Power Square, he looks down at the milk bottles, and what does he see? A couple of Mars bars, uh, which was an incredibly cheeky little joke, given the controversy over the drug bust and the fact that whether the police had been tipped off, who tipped them off, were they trying to break the stones, as some people said, to kind of make an example of them to British youth? In 68, you got Brian Jones announcing that he's basically stepping away from the stones and basically going into retirement. So in a way, Brian becomes Turner, even though I'm sure Camelot already had this idea about the reclusive rock star before, Brian then actually does take on that role in, in real life in an odd way. And of course, he was Anita Pallenberg's lover before he announced that. And then, you know, when the film is being edited, after it's shot and being edited, then you get Ultimate Data. 
So it's really a very momentous time for the Stones. It also happens to be the time when they're making, I think, the best music they ever made. Beggar's Banquet was recorded not long before they started shooting performance, and Jumping Jack Flash had just come out as a single. And then they would just go back into the studio and, and produce incredible music after that. So they, they were really, you're seeing Mick Jagger in performance at the absolute peak of his creativity. I mean, it really is an incredible moment that he kind of made this film while he was between making some of the greatest albums of all time. I would say it's also an incredible moment because there's a pretty long history of musical stars attempting to become something more than that, something more than pop stars, uh, whatever you want to call them. And most of them didn't succeed because most pop stars were, were singers, first and foremost. And a lot of them had their identities shaped by marketing teams, by studios, by record companies, by whatever larger entity existed that made them into a saleable commodity. But the Rolling Stones and the Beatles as well were very much their own men and very much their own groups and very much their own musicians. And their personalities absolutely inflected the culture of their time in a way that still exists. I mean, their their influence is still felt every day in popular culture. And it was because they were who they are and they were the men, they, they were the musicians who made the music they made and who had the public personalities that they had. You mentioned Borges, and I never realized just how much he goes through this whole movie. And uh, you'll hear in an interview a little bit later on with Sam Umland, where we talk a little bit more about that. And uh, after we talked, I did go and look up who that person is in the picture behind Turner, and the person that we see... Uh, when the bullet goes into Turner, Turner's head, and that is Borges from, I think it's uh, A Personal Anthology is the name of the book. But Borges is just all over this movie. The characters are reading it, whether they're in a you know, back of a car or there's a book on the floor. I mean, it's just this whole movie, he's shot right through. And I have to say, um, I didn't realize, Ben, all those years ago, 10 years ago when we were talking about this, I mean, your website at the time and now your email address also a reference to performance. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, I'm gone to Persia. You can find me on Twitter. I'm not supposed to be plugging myself now at this point in the show, but yes, I'm, I'm, I use gone to Persia. I mean, that, that, that speaks to my obsession with the film, of course, and I love that idea. I mean, we're jumping ahead in terms of the storyline right at the end of the film. Uh, you know, Chaz writes a note, gone to Persia. And that, of course, is a reference to the, the Persian mountains, which are more almost a kind of Burroughs thing than a Borges thing in the whole thing about the old man of the mountain and the Hashashin, which was something that Burroughs was obsessed with. And I think Camel probably came to all of that. Hassan al-Sabah, nothing is true, everything is permitted through reading Burroughs. Borges, of course, speaks to all of that too. Different kinds of realities. The idea of fictions taking over reality is very important to Borges. And violence as well. And, and the kind of random accidental nature of violence and how it, it can always stop us in our tracks. And I wonder about the Borges. I'm not entirely sure 
why Campbell made it such a big feature. I mean, to have that image of Borges at the end, uh, and and we know now, and I'm sure this will come out in the interview that you did with Sam. You know how how that was something that Camel referred to. You know, supposedly that's what he said as he was dying. Did you see the Borges picture when he put the gun to his head? And I I don't really know why that was such a big influence on him. I think that he probably saw this story of the gangster entering the world as a kind of modern-day Borges story, um, because there was often that quality in Borges, where it's almost like a mystery, almost like a thriller, and then it just becomes something else, something much stranger. I talk about how this movie is of two halves, but you already mentioned that the gangster part is truncated, and the second part is much longer of the two, but much, I can't say slower, because we still keep up that cutting style so even the cutting just makes it move faster regardless it just makes it feel like there's more kinetic energy to it than it would just have as far as like oh we're going to drop shrooms and we're going to have these long discussions about things but there are so many great moments in the second half of the film and for me one of the best ones is um i think it's Anita Pallenberg when she is holding that mirror up to Chaz and the way that she is making him into her you know we talk about how he becomes turner but the way that she will hold up the mirror and suddenly half of his face is now her face or holds up a uh the mirror to his chest and her breast is reflected in that mirror i think that's brilliant i love that filmmaking i think that was so well done and so well shot it just looks great and that it's already opening us up to that and the way that Chaz is so afraid of being feminine and just like no no i'm a man i'm all man and just you know he's saying that and pretty soon he's going to have this long wig on and he'll have makeup and all this but it's just like you know this is a this is a transformation that's happening in the second half of the film. It is, but it's a transformation that keeps on being justified by the narrative. Chaz has to do this because he has to get a picture for his passport that's going to look not like him at all. It's going to be his practical way out of the dilemma in which he finds himself. And yet, that practical thing becomes just another way that he gets drawn into Turner's world and the world of Turner's girls. It's a real subversion of his sense of, of identity, his sense of power, his sense of, I know who I am, I know where I'm going, and I know what I'm doing, and I'm doing it for a reason, and yet every single thing I do throws me right back into this situation that is everything that I don't want to be, everything that's, that, that is a contradiction to all of my ideas about what a man should be. At times, Pallenberg drives me crazy. I don't know what it is. She kind of reminds me of Nico a little bit sometimes. Just that, like, I don't know, just she seems to be a, l- a little bit of Pallenberg goes a long way. And I have to say, I'm not that familiar with her other movie roles. Like, I mean, I've seen Barbarella a ton. I've seen Candy. Um, I haven't seen a degree of murder yet, even though I think I have both the German dubbed and the English version of that, but I have yet to actually check out that Schlerndorf film. But after watching uh, performance many times as I have over the last month, it's like, uh, I, I don't know if I can take much more of her just because Ferber is uh, quite a presence in the film when she shows up, let's say. 
Yeah, I mean, let's talk about the performances because one of the things that's really interesting about the film is the way that it blends, you know, a very highly trained professional actor, James Fox, with essentially a lot of not quite a number of non-professional actors, Mick Jagger being one of them in a way, although he's obviously a very experienced performer. Hallenberg had had a few roles, as you just, you know, comprehensively listed, but she was hardly an experienced actress. And some of the roles were pretty much glorified walk-ons, I think. But she had done some work in the theatre. Um, but I don't get a feeling of her being a particularly accomplished actress in the film. And I, I sort of, in a way, although her role is so different from Michelle Breton's role as Lucy, they feel to me as both just people kind of being themselves on screen or being captured in very natural ways, playing kind of versions of who they actually are. And then you've got some of the gangsters. They're non, they're again, they're non-professional. Um, Harry Flowers, Johnny Shannon. He was a boxing coach. He was a market vendor. John Binden, who I've mentioned already, he was a real hard man. Um, there are a few other professional actors here and there. Kenneth Con- Colley being one, the guy that Chaz keeps bringing up to try and arrange for his passage out of the country. Um, but, you know, I love that, that way in which, you know, it, it, it kind of emphasizes Chaz's immersion into a whole new world when he goes into the house and he's got these three people that aren't trained actors at all. They're just these incredible presences. And he has to kind of work with them and deal with them. While, you know, the other thing is, of course, we know that James Fox is nothing like Chaz. You know, if you're familiar with early James Fox performances, you know he's a posh guy. Uh, You know he comes from a very elite background. He's not at all an East End hard man, but he's amazing. You know, it is an incredible performance. It really is probably the quintessential British method acting in the sense that James Fox completely loses himself in that role and becomes another person. And that, in a way, speaks to that whole theme about merging and changing and doubling as well, that you're really aware of this actor who's become another person in this very complete way. And then you've got Mick Jagger, who's kind of playing a version of himself. There's a bit of Brian Jones in there, uh, for sure, and he's acknowledged that, but he's really kind of playing himself, let's face it. Lucy, uh, the Michelle Breton character, again, she's herself. You know, she's talking about visa problems. That's exactly what she was facing. And then Ferber is a kind, is a, another version of Anita Pallenberg. So they are versions of themselves with this incredible actor in their midst, and it creates a really interesting tension, I think. What's interesting to me, too, that there's not just two Chazes. There's not just Chaz the gangster and Chaz the rock star. There's Chaz the juggler that's in the middle of this as well. And that's not a joke. There's this whole thing. Johnny Dean. He becomes a third person through this. And you get this whole thing with the red hair that he has. And when he's washing out the red dye that's in his hair or the red paint, I imagine that it's it, that it is. It so reminds me of Peril the Foo just with the red paint all over his face rather than the blue paint that we have in Peril of Foo. But I love that whole thing when uh, Turner is calling out Johnny Dean, just like, oh, you're a juggler, huh? And he just starts throwing balls at him, and they just keep bouncing off of him. But I love that he comes to him as this other person, that he's trying to be this 
performer of a different sort, and yet Turner could just see through it completely. And Turner wants nothing to do with having Chaz in his house, and he's just like, why did you even let this guy in my house? And wants him out of there immediately. And I, I, I just really like that immediate tension that's there between these two men. But I also like the fact that they're both performers. I mean, they completely know it. They are both entirely artificial constructs. And in Turner's case, it's a much more calculated one. It's commercial. It's rock star persona. It's what you do to get ahead in a business. Whereas for Chaz, it's holy crap. I'm in a terrible situation and I need to pretend to be somebody else because there's no other way I'm going to get out of it. The essential conflict there is between two performers whose performances are motivated in entirely different ways. And clearly the person who's going to come out ahead is the person who is in control of his performance. And that is Turner. And there's no way about it. Right. I mean, Chaz is, is off on the, on the back foot. What's he going to do when faced with somebody who is a performer of such accomplishment, such subtlety and sophistication? He's just a guy trying to pretend to be who he isn't so he can get the hell out of a terrible, terrible situation he's gotten himself into just long enough that he can go someplace else and you know, have a nice sit down and think about what he's going to do next. I mean, there's something so sad about Chaz, and I don't think I recognized that the first time I saw this film, but in every subsequent viewing, it becomes more clear that Chaz is just the poor guy who, whatever his past faults, was always in over his head and was never the guy who was going to come out on top and who ultimately uh, makes one mistake that just leads him to the worst possible case scenario for the person he is. With that amazing line of, I am a bullet. It's like, whoa. Well, well, you know, one of the things that's so incredible about the first half of the film, or the first third of the film, is is the violence. And Chaz is such a dark character. I think it's really interesting, that point you make, Maitland, about how, you know, we feel we actually do come to feel sorry for him because on the surface, he's incredibly violent, nasty, sadistic, cruel man. But there is also something so charismatic about the performance that you do like him. I, I and, and it's something I struggle with because we should actually hate Chaz and be quite happy for him to be sort of mind effed by Turner and Ferber. But I actually do like the guy, and there's something about the nihilism of the character as well. And I Am the Bullet really epitomizes that, the power of that nihilism that anticipates punk, you know, and, 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 and that's another way in which performance is so weirdly ahead of its time. And when Chaz dyes his hair and, uh, and kind of shows up at, at Power Square, he seems to have sort of moved from one, one counterculture to another. You know, he's, he's this, he's this kind of transgressive gangster who's now become this other figure. And he almost looks a bit like David Bowie, you know, and again, that anticipates Rogue working with Bowie later on, the man who fell to earth. The look he has seems to be so ahead of its time. He becomes out of time in a way before he can kind of enter Turner's world and Turner changes him yet again. I think that one of the most brilliant things about performance is that you never know what Chaz was before he's the Chaz we see. 
there is not a moment in this movie where you have a little conversation or anything in which you learn how he became that guy, how, you know, he, uh, what his family background was, whether he's brought up by a single mother uh, or wound up in, in foster care or there's absolutely nothing to tell you how Chaz became Chaz. And yet, I think the more times you watch performance, the more you ask yourself what exactly made Chaz the person he is. Because he's clearly not just a dumb machine of a violent subculture. There is something more to him. Uh, You don't really know what it is, but in his interactions with Turner and Turner's entourage and Harry Flowers and Harry Flowers' people, you can see that he's not of either of those cultures. He's somewhere in between trying to find his way. And again, the more times I see performance, the more I feel really bad for Chaz. And he is a dick. He is a violent guy. He is somebody who has made pretty much every wrong choice that you can make in your life. And those wrong choices are the ones that bring him to the position he is in at the, the end of the film. But it's hard not to look at him and think, wow, I wonder what could have been different in your past that could have made you not wind up here. I talked about how Chaz is at least three people in this, and I forget about how Turner basically becomes Harry Flowers at one point as well during the whole memo memo from Turner thing. Even though it is a memo from Turner, He's sitting behind Flowers' desk. He's got Flowers' guys in the room with him, or at least it's shot that way. It's very fascinating to me that he you know, becomes Chaz's boss for a little bit during that whole kind of like reading Chaz the Riot Act. That memo is not a very pleasant memo. It's not something you want to get in your inbox on a Monday morning. Memo from Turner, if not the first rock video, has got to be very, very early on that list. That is a standalone narrative contained within one song. And it is fucking breathtaking. It is the kind of thing that MTV uh, would not discover for many, many years after it first began broadcasting commercial American, mostly and UK music videos. It's an incredibly powerful and dark narrative contained in, uh, what, three and a half minutes? That final shot of all of those gangsters' bodies on the ground are absolutely like a surrealist painting. And I, I spent a big chunk of today looking to see what painting it is that they remind me of, and I couldn't find it. But I know that I've seen that image from it's, it's, something it's that Francis Bacon, I think. I mean, is it's it Bacon? Bit, yeah, it's a Francis Bacon of kind of very blurred, slightly abstracted bodies on a floor. Yeah, I can't tell you the title of the painting, but it is modeled after a very specific Bacon painting, yeah. That doesn't surprise me in the least. It feels like this movie, you know, if you if you have an art history background, you're going to be really happy watching this movie because it feels like he's really making a lot of references. I mean, you already mentioned all of the art, and there's even like, a, oh, yeah, I'm thinking about hanging this picture here and like talking about art directly, but then looking around the rooms. And it's funny to me because it's very much, for me, 
the gangsters trying to put on airs of being much more sophisticated. We're not just gangsters. We're not criminals. We are, you know, men of the world. We're very cultured. And look at this beautiful artwork that I have. And how many times have we seen that in other films? You know, the gangsters trying to aspire to be much more than what they are. And, and by buying the artwork, they think that they now are these cultured people. Do you know what nemesis means? A righteous infliction of retribution manifested by an appropriate agent, personified in this case by an honorable cunt. Me. I believe the twins that come in to, to sell Turner, the Magritte painting, were real art dealers who were sort of part of that whole scene. That's a that's a hilarious little bit where they they come in and that painting then later shows up in the memo from Turner sort of video as we might call it the sort of pop promo, uh, which is in a way the climax of the film. It's a, it's a kind of amazing moment that we build towards um, where we finally get to see Jagger slash Turner actually do his thing. He's kind of hinted at it about what he's capable of. And just prior to that sequence, I think, is when he does appear as the leather boy. You know, he comes in in this leather costume with the sort of rocker's pompadour. And then he, of course, delivers the great line about the only performance that makes it, that makes it to the end, is the one that achieves madness. And pretty soon after that, we go into Memo from Turner. It's, very, it's a very sophisticated sequence narratively in that... Turner isn't just kind of pantomiming Harry Flowers. He's sort of become another gang figure. He's now become another kind of boss. It's like, a again, emerging. He's kind of a rock star gang boss, and he's, the lyrics to Memo from Turner are extremely strange. They explicitly reference burrows. Um, they're fairly homophobic in places. And there's a kind of whole new persona that's essentially created through those lyrics. And the music, of course, is absolutely brilliant. Uh, we haven't talked much about the music. It's incredible soundtrack. The soundtrack for this, I mentioned The Last Poets, but there's what, the right, Rye Cooter? There's a lot of like very jangly type of music on here. And then I talked about the, the noises that were also on here, which I want to say were created by a Moog or a Moog, but I'm not sure if that's true or not. But yeah, this, Soundtrack goes a lot of different places. It is a Moog, and you actually see Turner playing with a Moog, you know, in those scenes in his studio. He's kind of fiddling around with the Moog, and Jagger indeed did create music with a Moog later, not that long later, for Kenneth Anger, and was doing soundtracks for Kenneth Anger. And I think there is some, some idea that perhaps there's an overlap and some of the move noises in this end up in Kenneth Anger films later, but I don't think that's true. There were two technicians whose names I can't recall right now who were brought in by Jack Nietzsche, who was producing the soundtrack to do the Moog stuff. And that became such an important part of it because, you know, we were talking about Chaz earlier and how there's a sense of Chaz. He's trying to be this incredible gangster but he's not quite managing it somehow. Um, and there's something else going on, on underneath the surface. And that really is expressed by those electronic noises of a kind of the noise in Chaz's head. So the Moog is really important in terms of creating a sense of atmosphere and 
the sense that something's going on under the surface of these characters. But the music generally is incredible. Ry Kuda was brought in as a guitarist. He was very young at the time. Um, and he plays on Nemo from Turner, of course. Although it's not always known who the other musicians on that are. I think there's some speculation about who they are. They're mostly session musicians. It's not the Stones. They weren't really involved in this, apart from Mick. There's Buffy St. Marie. There's so much going on. Randy Newman on the soundtrack. And it's very American. That, uh, that, what, that was something that struck me about the soundtrack. It's, 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 there's a lot of American performers. There's a lot of blues. And you'll notice that the sequence where, which is a very beautiful sequence. Again, we talked about small sequences that aren't overall necessarily important, but they're extremely haunting. The sequence where Ferber goes to look at the mushrooms uh, in the garden, in the in the greenhouse, and Chaz is kind of watching from the basement window, and it's an extremely beautifully lit sequence. So that's definite kudos to Nick Rogue there with lots of lens flare. And you hear Rai Kuda noodling away on the guitar. And to my ears, in 1991, it was like, hey, why is he playing the theme tune to Paris, Texas? But of course, not Paris, Texas, which of course Rai Kuda did play uh, in the early 1980s. Uh, so it seemed incredible that Rai Kuda was playing Paris, Texas on a soundtrack to performance. But it, actually, it's, it's Blind Willie Johnson, Dark Was the Night, Cold Was the Ground which is a classic Delta blues piece. And it's just this really interesting juxtaposition of the, you know, the London gangster, the London rock star, and then you've got Delta blues. I have to say that to me, the eeriest music in this entire film is the music at the very beginning when we're seeing the jet. And it's that it sounds like some piece of electrical something being vibrated or shook around or that's something that always got under my skin. And I have no idea what that is, who wrote it, or anything. But for me, that sets the tone for performance, that you're disoriented. We should say, too, that this movie wasn't really critically lauded when it first came out. And there was the delay that we'll hear again about later on uh, as we talk with uh, Sam Umlin. But there's, you know, the, this... Shot in what, 67, 68, was supposed to be done by 68, and then there's a little bit of a delay. Eventually comes out in 70 in the States, 71 in the UK, and when it comes out, people aren't that thrilled about it. And it really takes a long time for people to start to see that maybe it's not just a complete waste of, waste of time. Look, I don't remember anybody saying anything good about performance when it first opened in the U.S., I don't remember it having good reviews. I don't remember anybody I knew saying, oh, my God, you have to see this movie. As I've, as I've said already, you know, I wanted to see it because Mick Jagger was in it. But I, having seen it, it was an entirely different experience. I, I looked at it and go, wow, I, I haven't seen a movie like this before. So it, it, but everything from the editing to the, to the production design, to the performances, all things we've talked about already, were absolutely amazing to me. It was a movie that seemed to me to come from a different place than the movies I had been seeing otherwise, which were, by and large, big commercial American movies. The American reviews were really harsh on the film, uh, in particular. I think there were British critics. Not all of them loved it, but some did get it and most notably Derek Malcolm for The Guardian 
um, he he said, you know, this film is an art artwork, um, and he kind of got that it wasn't a commercial film. But in America, the critics absolutely loathed it. You know, John Simon said it was worthless. Richard Schickel hated it for time. Andrew Saris, his his review is sort of double edged, but he basically says it stinks, meaning I think it, it looks like it's really smelly. And there was a kind of visceral reaction to the film as something that was repulsive and ugly, which is really odd to me because, you know, watching it as I did in the early 90s and having seen it a number of times since, I actually think it's an incredibly beautiful film. But it was seen as really unpleasant. Um, and, and, of course, the violence of that first 30, 40 minutes, perhaps it's hard to go back in time and, and, and imagine what it was like to see that. I mean, it was, I guess, considered to be extremely violent, and that did create a kind of shock effect that people really took against it. And then the second half was had sex and drugs, and there was a, almost a kind of moralistic attitude towards the film as having, you know, we used this phrase already, gone too far in terms of its emulation of a dark counterculture. But, of course, time has really changed our view of performance. And I think nobody would be saying those things now. I mean, it really is considered to be a great masterpiece. And I have to respond as an American who was reading all of those critics as I was growing up. I mean, they were the major film critics of my youth. Because I loved what I think we now call marginal cinema, I loved horror movies, I loved exploitation films, all of them, to me, represented a, a kind of establishment of critics who had absolutely no interest in the kind of films that deviated from the Hollywood norm. And that was the Hollywood norm that was established in the 1930s and survived right into the 60s and 70s. And when I read those critics, every time I opened up The New Yorker, The New York Times, even the post, I remember thinking, I don't get where these people are coming from. I do not understand their take on cinema. Although pro I probably wasn't using the word cinema then. I was probably using the word movies. But it in no way aligned with the kind of movies that I loved when I was growing up that I saw on late night television. And yeah, movies like Cat People and I Walked with a Zombie all those critics who were major movie critics in the 70s were people who, who would have hated those movies, who would have said that they were just trash, they were formulaic studio films made to be on the bottom list of a double bill. And they took that same attitude to all of the exploitation movies that were being released in the 70s. So, of course, they all hated performance. It was decadent. It didn't have a proper narrative. It was the kind of movie that, well, nobody who really understood the cinema wanted to see. So all of that was part of why, well, yeah, sure, I wanted to see performance because the people whose reviews I hated hated that movie. So, yeah, absolutely. I was there. Ben, when did this one start to gain a little bit more uh, respectability? I mean, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, my my sense, you know, that 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 screening in in ninety one, the the movie drone screening was kind of important. But in a way, it had already begun the idea of performance as a cult movie. You can go back to eighty one uh, with Danny Peary's first volume of cult movies, 
because performance is one of the first batch of cult movies in that first volume. Um, so there was already a sense of it as a cult movie. Um, I mean, of course, I can only really speak from a UK perspective, but the film wasn't available uh, on video until nine, until the late 80s. I think 1988, it came out on VHS for the first time. And then people started to get hold of it. I didn't see it, as I say, until it was on TV. But then you had, um, you know, the Happy Mondays. Um, they produced an album in the late 80s, which is called Bummed. It has a number of songs that refer to performance. There's a song called Performance. There's a song called Mad Cyril. Um, and they sampled uh, performance. And that was the beginning of the cult. Then you've got the Alex Cox introducing it in 91. And then in the mid-90s, um, there's a really good article about the film written by a journalist called Mick Brown, who later went on to write you know, a short book, The A to Z of Performance, for Bloomsbury, where he sort of tracked down um, Camel was still alive at that point. Um, he he kind of interviewed a number of the main people involved in the film, including managing to track down in France Michel Breton and talk to her about it, and she only had bad memories of, of the film. And that article, I think, was quite important in sort of reactivating uh, the, the the cult and the respectability for performance. I don't want to use the respectability. It, it doesn't need to be respectable. Just the fact that it was respected as a great film. And then um, there was an event at the Institute of Contemporary Arts in London um, in 1997 or 98. Um, which was a sort of day-long, in a way, a symposium about the film, uh, which I attended. Um, and there was a screening of the film in the morning, and then there were two panels. One, there was a critics panel, which had Colin McCabe on it and Paul Buck, both of whom would go on to write books about the film. And the earlier panel had James Fox, Anita Pallenberg, David Camel, Donald's brother, who had worked as a producer on the film, by this point, Donald had committed suicide, sadly enough. Chris Rodley was the chair of the panel. He would then direct or was directing a documentary about Camel called The Ultimate Performance, which you can watch on YouTube. And yes, the big ticket thing was the fact that James Fox was there with Pallenberg and everyone was very excited to see them. But for me, the most exciting thing was seeing Harry Flowers in the audience himself. Johnny Shannon was there, and I think Stanley Meadows was there, who plays Rosie, the uh, the other gangster. So it was really surreal to walk through the corridors of the ICA in London and bump into Anita Pallenberg hanging out with Harry Flowers. Of course, they don't actually have any scenes together in the film, but I did get to see them having a conversation, uh, which was really wonderful. But that I, I think that was, in a way, the midpoint in its reputation kind of coming back, especially in the UK. But I have a feeling in America it had been seen as a cult movie for quite a bit longer, actually. No, you're absolutely right. It was being shown by theaters like the Cinema Village and the Thalia. So, yes, it was absolutely a cult movie that was available, certainly not on a broad spectrum way, but in big cities that had revival houses and specialty cinemas. So people like me and you and you could go and see them. You know, we went, we picked up the village voice and looked at where 
these movies that weren't big theatrical mainstream movies were playing. And I don't know about anybody else, but I would certainly go through those listings and I would check off movies that I'd maybe heard about somewhere or somebody had told me that that might be interesting. And yeah, I would, I would make an effort to see them. All right, we're going to take a break and we're going to play a pair of interviews. First up, we will hear from Professor Sam Umlund, co-author of Donald Camel, A Life on the Wild Side. After that, we'll hear from Karen Pym, author of Jumpin' Jack Flash, David Litvinoff, and The Rock and Roll Underworld. And we'll be back with both of those right after these brief messages. Coming soon from WeirdingWayMedia.com, a new limited series podcast featuring Mike White from The Projection Booth, Chris Stashu from The Culture Cast, and me, Mark Begley, from Wake Up Heavy Recollections of Horror. We will be cracking open the seal from the files of Police Squad in color in this 10-episode series starting January 2023. Find it on WeirdingWayMedia.com. Where was Donald Kamel in his career when performance came around? You know, he had been a writer and was interested in screenwriting. And his brother, David, actually was a producer. And so there was that connection to film through through David. And Donald started as a writer and his his first few efforts came, you know, were there. There was the one that clearly reflects, I think, some of Donald's early work, you know, would have been Duffy. So that's where he was. His agent put him in, in, in touch with the makers of performance. So it was really through his writing that he was able to, to start work on performance. What he said in interviews is that he really wasn't part of that scene at all. I mean, when you, you associate him with James Fox, Mick Jagger, he said that really, I really wasn't a part of that at all. And it was only through a chance meeting, you know, for instance, that he actually met Mick Jagger, for instance, of this in 1965. And, and he had begun writing by then. But he, he was really not part of a film scene as such. He was living in France, was really still trying to work on his painting. And so film really wasn't the way he was going to go, or I think what he imagined the way his work was going to go. And so it all came about really with that that meeting with Jagger and and their people. And of course, he knew Anita Pallenberg, met the Rolling Stones through through her. And that's where that all began. But this, of course, is a couple of years out from from performance. So what's the kind of the life of the project? How does it go from that meeting with Jagger to actually you know coming to the screen? Yeah, he had a meeting with Sandy Lieberson, you know, who was a Sanford, Sandy who became the producer performance. And there were meetings, you know, initial meetings with, with him. And he wrote a number of treatments that would eventually turn into or become performance. But these are rough. These are not screenplays as such. These were just, as it were, just kind of, again, treatments um, without any shape of a screenplay or anything else. The core of performance was in those, 
and that is the gangster on the run in London who 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 by chance meets this you know rock star you know hides out at his his house but but it's nothing like performance i mean that was that would i mean that's kind of the loose part really that's where that started with that core idea was a gangster on the run in this chance meeting with this rock star and and his 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 chance to hide out from those who are after him but i wouldn't say that those early treatments were performance by any means i mean it went a long way from those initial drafts or you know uh, treatments short stories whatever you want to call it how does he get tagged to direct this because this is his directorial co-debut i think that that came through his brother david's friendship with nick rogue David knew Nick Rogue back in the 50s, and they were friends, you know, in the late 50s. And that's how he was introduced to Nick Rogue. He also painted, and I'm blocking her name at the moment, but Nick Rogue's first wife, Susan X, I can't remember her name. Donald actually painted her portrait. So he knew Nick that way as well. So this is years before. In, in you know performance, but I think that came about through Sanford Lieberson. I think David knowing Nick, Nick and his discussions. That's how I think it's essentially he came to to be offered the directing position. Keith Richards has nothing good to say about Donald. Why is that? You know, I can say it now because I know I can I can tell you the backstory in that. Which when we interviewed Anita Pallenberg, she was ask us not to. Well, basically tell that that story. Donald had other actresses in mind for performance, not Anita Pallenberg. When he asked her, asked Anita to do performance, she was pregnant with Keith's child. And he said, you must do this. Basically, you must do this part for me. And there's one condition, you have an abortion. And she did. And that's the origin of Keith Richards' hatred of Donald Campbell. And she said it was difficult. It really strained their rela- her and her relationship with Keith. But that's really where that started. And ever since then, after him requesting that Anita take that part, he, and he knew Anita, you know, he had known her for some years. In fact, I would say that we could call her his girlfriend, that is Donald Campbell's girlfriend, before she became... Keith Richards' partner. That hatred began as a result of, of that abortion that he asked and needed to have. What was that working relationship between Rogue and Kamel? Donald, in interviews, said that you know he he worked with the actors and 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 Rogue worked with the camera. Now I've asked I asked David Camel numerous times about that relationship. Well, how did that go? What was happening? Because David, you know, is associate producer on performance, and he said you know that. That he said it's an alchemy. It's impossible to sort out. You know, he kept insisting, I can't sort it out who did what. He said that was the special alchemy that was created by the two of them working together. And I can't tell you, you know, exactly, oh, Donald directed and Nick Rogue simply ran the camera. Donald Campbell suggested that, in fact, he was working closest with the actors and Nick Rogue was the cameraman. But I'm not sure about that. I mean, I I don't know. And I, I guess I'll default to David Camel on that, that it's impossible to sort out who did what. But I know that that he, I mean, Donald knew these people. He, he, I mean, he, know, he knew Anita. He, he knew Mick Jagger. 
Michelle Breton was his girlfriend at the time. David Camel was the associate producer. So all of those things were, you know, what he, you know, came to that film because of him. David Camel and Nick Rowe had known each other for many years, probably a decade by the time that film started, if if not more than by the time that started, that film started filming. So I think that's how that came about. And, you know, it's it's impossible. It's one of those things you'd like to sort of chicken, chicken or egg dialectic that you'd like to sort out. Who did what? What came first? Camel or Rogue? I think it's it's difficult to sort out. Because there's so many touch points that feel like a Nick Rogue film, but they may not, may not be. You know, things like use of artwork, the use of music, all of all these kind of things. And especially the editing style just feel very Nick Rogue-esque. But yet you look at Camel's work and you're like, oh, I can see the seeds of those as well. Donald Camel would, would you know, offhandedly say, well, Nick learned that from me. But, you know, you know, I'm not going to say absolutely. Oh, sure. You know, he, he picked that all up from from Donald. I don't think that's true. But I would say that Frank Mazzola, who then came in and sort of, you know, re-edited the picture this long after, you know, almost two years after it had finished filming, not quite, but almost two. Frank Mazzola said that the film, if if you look at the second half of the movie, after he goes to Chaz's house, okay, 81 Palace Square. Okay, the first half of the movie played exactly like the second half. In other words, it was that sort of style where it was slower Part of the reason the performance that why they hesitated to release performance wasn't really playing. If if you use that lingo, that film lingo, the film didn't play because, you know, there was nothing going on. And the, the first half was so slow in unfolding that there was no dynamic. You know, the, the film had remember Frank telling me the, the film didn't have a lot of energy. It was it was it was seemed like it was cut together sort of loosely. You know, he wasn't belittling the editors who were credited on the movie. And he just felt that there was no energy in the picture. The style that we so much associate with performance really came after, after Frank Zola came on board. And he said, you know, the problem was that, you know, we had, here's was Warner Brothers' position. We have to get Jagger in the picture earlier. It's, it's taking too long. So that slow opening, right, of the film. Before we even get to 81 Palace Square is where's Jagger? That was I mean, that was their position. It, it seems simple, but it's, it's a good question. I mean, if Mick Jagger's a star, where is he? Right. So what they did is they, you know, Frank said, well, we put in that flash cut of Mick Jagger, you know, with the spray can spraying, you know, paint in the hallway. And, and we don't know where he is or why he's doing that. But they, they cut him in earlier there, there that you're happy now, right? Mick Jagger's in the picture. But the first half, all of that was really created between Donald and, and Frank. And then it, he said, do a lot of editing after after he got to, to, to 81 Power Square, after Chaz gets to Turner's house. He said, I didn't do much. I, we didn't have time. So what, what I worked on primarily was, the, he said, was the first half. And so you take that with what, you know, I mean, is that Camel? Is that Frank Mazzola? The two of them. But it was really prompted by the fact that film was just so slow and was so slow going that they had to do something. 
And he said, I did a few edits in the second half. You know, there's that when, when Chaz first meets Turner and, and Chaz sort of points up at the ceiling and we see a close up of a nipple, you know, a spotlight comes up on a, on a nipple. And he said, Frank said, I put that in there. I did, I did a couple bits like that. But he said, that was it. And I said, well, we're that first half. I mean, he I, opens up with that jet, right? That jet aircraft that zooming across the screen. And he said, I had that film somewhere. And I, I stupidly never asked him, what's it from? You know, in other words, why did you have that piece of film? But he said, I had that piece of film. And I asked Donald, why don't we cut it in there? And Donald says, sure, cut it in there. Let's see what happens. And they both liked it. But stupidly, I didn't ask him where, why he had it and where it came from. So they put that kind of stuff in there. And then that whole editing style that the film opens with, they all created, well, you know, well over a year after after the, the cut that was submitted to Warner Brothers was rejected. So this is all very late in the process. Frank Mazzola was working on a film in Mexico called called Macho Callahan, which stars David Jansen. And he had gone back to Hollywood and was editing what was then would have been the uh, old Sam Goldwyn studio, which became Warner Brothers Hollywood, which it no longer is now. It's since moved on and become something else. But it was the old Warner Brothers Hollywood, and that's the old United Artists. So if you trace that studio clear back, you know, like Frank said, you know, here's here's the room. We went into a screening room, and he says, here's where Chaplin and Fairbanks, you know, and Griffith and all those looked at dailies, right? Right here in this room, you know. So that's the that was what became Warner Brothers Hollywood. And that's where he was working on Macho Callahan. And he said, so I would work. What I did is I turned that film over to my assistant. And I went next door, literally. I mean, and edited room side by side, you know, next door and sat down with Donald. And we did performance. He said the first day they sat down to edit, Donald quoted Godard's famous quip about a film has a beginning and middle and end, but not necessarily in that order. And that's the rule they, they used when they started re-editing that first half. So that style was invented, let's say. You know, it's like jazz. You know, he would use the metaphor of jazz. How do you get from here to there and that kind of thing? So what does Warner Brothers think about this new cut of it? The then chief of Warner Brothers, John Cowley, looked at it. And said, okay, we'll release it, but, and then he demanded some cuts. And this is what everybody wants to know, right? What happened to, you know, and roughly if you look at it, really, because I found a continuity script of what they use, I mean, it's really heavily detailed. If you look at the running time of that, as opposed to the release version of performance, there's about two and a half minutes difference. So it's not like 10 minutes, you know, nothing like that. It's about two and a half, 245, which always struck me as odd. Most of that was violence. Callie thought it was, was too over the top. And if you know that scene, for instance, where Chaz shoots, shoots his old friend Joey, that whole sequence where they break in, you know, the paint all over the walls you know, they're throwing paint all over and they beat up Chaz and and they're really giving him the works, you know, and apparently that that was 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 what uh, was what uh, what they objected to was the violence. And I always thought that was odd because in a film with the with this kind of sex it it had, you know, because one British reviewer actually called the movie dirty, 
largely because of the sex in the second half. Well, Warner Brothers really didn't cut that out. If they did, I mean, I don't have, I can't tell you what it actually was, but I think most of what they actually asked to be removed was in the, uh, in the first half, again, to tone down the violence. Interestingly enough, huh? It wasn't the sex, it was the violence. And, you know, that was in the news those days. I mean, you go back in those days, it was talking about the increasingly violent content, motion pictures. I mean, that was very much an issue at the time. And so maybe they were sensitive to that and, and why they wanted some of that violence toned down. I don't think we lost a lot. In other words, I don't think we lose any crucial information. I mean, I really, it's just that they, you know, John Kelly felt that it was over the top and he approved it. Then he was the studio head who approved it. And that's when it was released. And of course, it wasn't released in the UK until January 71. So it was first released in, 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 you know, in the United States. And this would have been 1970. Most people say, oh, it was two years, you know, it was setting two years. Well, no, it really wasn't. Because had performance worked, let's say, when they turned in their edit, they could have easily, that is Warner Brothers, could have easily released performance at Con that year and chose not to. But I mean, I mean, it wasn't they didn't like it. It was they felt it was unreleasable. But I mean, really was could have been theoretically ready. And that so it, it got held, and that was only a few months after it finished. In other words, it, it was done. It could have been done in time for Khan, but it was shot in 68. It could have been done, you know, and, you know, released at Khan in 69, and, and they didn't do it, and it wasn't ready. But so it really didn't set that long. I mean, there were a few months there where everybody wondered what they were going to do with it. And Donald was back in London, and, you know, Frank went on to other things, and, you know, there was, or Frank was working on Macho Callahan. Donald was in London. And, you know, it just kind of sat there for, for, uh, you know, uh, summer of 69. And, and, uh, they didn't really get started on it until the, the early 1970. And then I think Rogue had already taken off for walkabout at that point. Yeah. Because nothing was happening with performance, right? It was seemed dead in the water. And so he went off and did performance or excuse me, uh, walkabout. Yeah. How was the film received when it first came out? I think the underground press, and my underground, I know that's a broad term, I mean, say Rolling Stone. I think they were confused by it. My memory of reading those reviews at the time, they felt it was, it was, it was confusing. And I know that one review of it said, and I can't, again, I apologize, I can't give you the actual magazine or newspaper who called the film evil. This is yeah. This is a heavy evil movie, and yeah, you figure that one out. But it was heavy evil movie, and yeah, and I think the warning was don't see this on acid, <laughs> you know. And uh, that's why I think underground, you know, some, you know, some some magazine or newspaper like that. But yeah, it was it was called evil, which is not interesting and not fascinating. I think, what would you say? You know, it's an interesting thing to speculate. What is it disturb people so much? Obviously, it really wasn't the violence. I mean, yeah, you could criticize, oh, it's over the top, it's violent. But of course, you know, what what I would argue is all the red, you know, when they're throwing red paint all over Chaz's apartment and so on, that's just what, you know, that's Godardian red. Right. In other words, Godard said, if I have people bleed purple or green, it's not going to be violent. But if we throw red around and put red, then it suddenly becomes violent. 
So you had that idea that there was excessive violence because there was a lot of red paint, a lot of red being thrown around. So you might say, you know, it was violent, but then you would get to the second half and, oh, well, there's some really, you know, there's some sex going on there. There's the menage Jagger has. But I mean, other than that, you know, it's not too far out, you know. And then, of course, in 1970, when you see, when you cut and and see the scene between Jagger and Fox in bed together, you know that gives it a whole other dimension, right? Which back then, who knows how people reacted to that? But where I think he got that idea was, and I think the film that most influenced performance is John Borman's Point Blank, and uh, it's similar scene where we see edited almost exactly the same. That Warner Brothers film, too, by the way, where we see the Lee Marvin figure rolling in bed with Angie Dickinson. And then it cuts. There's a cut and it's John Vernon. Right. And it's like it's like, you know, it's the same thing that's in Point Blank. And I think when you ask me about the origin of it, I think that really performance took a drastic step up. Conceptual shift change is when Donald Camel saw Borman's Point Blank. And that opened in London the last week of December 1967. Well, that's after that is when that script really started taking off. And he was taking people to see Point Blank. He was dragging James Fox to see Point Blank, you know, you know, Anita, you know, Michelle, everybody in the cast, let's go see Point Blank, you know, Mick Jagger, we got to see Point Blank, you know. So that was really the film, I think, that, you know, because I know that when I first got interested in performance, I thought it was just I'd never seen anything like it, you know, and I didn't see it when it came out. I saw it actually on the college circuit. And so this was like four years later. So I didn't actually see the film for the first time until 1974. I'd never seen anything like it. That style that performance has really was derived from point blank. I know in, in early criticism, oh, it's Joseph Losey's The Servant, right, where you have this this kind of psychodrama going on, you know, this, this, these two characters battling, you know, kind of, you know, battling their, their wills and their personalities, you know, in conflict, if you, if you look. And I'm certain that Donald Campbell saw performance and he saw James Fox in, in The Servant. Uh, I'm sure of that. I don't think The Servant is performance. You know, what happens between the two characters isn't precisely the same, is it, as what happens between Chaz and Turner in performance. But I remember that a lot of references were to The Servant. My argument would be, yes, I would acknowledge that. But Donald Campbell really didn't, or maybe it was a beginning to have a sense that he might move toward motion pictures, you know, in 1963, maybe, because he's got a really early script called Just a Jackknife, a Keith Deer, which is a line, you know, out of the Three Penny Opera about Jack the Ripper. And so I think his very first attempt at a script was probably around 64, somewhere in there. I mean, and that was Jack the Ripper story. So kind of what he realized in Why to the Eye many years later, you know, kind of, I mean, not exactly, but kind of, right? I mean, he was interested in that creativity and violence and that kind of stuff, stuff he was interested in and in, in performing. So I think that, yes, you can acknowledge The Servant, and, but I think the real, real key film, and in, 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 I would argue, is Point Blank. 
And that was a film that ended in the same way. I mean, with that kind of a pori, what's happening, right? Lee Marvin looks out. And I thought we were on Alcatraz. We're not on Alcatraz, right? Alcatraz is out in the bay. Where are we? That same kind of disjunction, right? That same displacement about what has just happened. And I think that performance left audiences the same way, right? I mean, with that, with that same feeling. What exactly happened in those last few minutes? And of course, that's a great question. Now, I would turn to another film in part to explain what's going on there and a film that David Campbell told me truly, deeply fascinated Donald Campbell, uh, his brother, was Cocteau's Blood of a Poet. And he said, yeah, Donald was very, truly fascinated by that movie. It does have the successive suicides through which the poet artist goes. I mean, there is multiple suicides. The central figure, you know, puts the gun to his head, you know, more than once. And each time is kind of a new reality, right? He enters a new kind of experience. And, you know, I view that, you know, Cocteau called it Phoenixology. Uh, that was his term. In other words, the steps through which the artist goes to find their true self, their death and resurrection over until they move closer and closer to their actual self. Well, that seems to be, right, what is going on in performance with Chaz. I mean, he seemed, no, there's not the suicide as such, although, you know, although, you know, he shoots Turner right in the head, but discovery that's going on in the film is Chaz, right? He's the character we're following. He's the character we're introduced to. We meet him first. We follow him into Turner's house, right? And so it's really, what are you going to say? Is it a Turner story? No, it really isn't. It's Chaz's. So I think the other film that we got to keep in mind that really influenced performance would be Blood of a Poet. And that idea of, of the transformations the artist goes through to move closer to their real self. So it's a hard film. I mean, you don't immediately watch that film. And, you you know, it's like that dislocation at the end of Point Blank. What just happened? You study it and think about it and know a little bit about the, the kind of philosophy and the kind of films that Donald interested Donald Camel. Then you can move closer to really what was happening in that last bit. Who knows what people thought of that? I mean, I, I think it's much like, I mean, I'm, I'm sure people were puzzled. Like, well, what, what did I just see? It was, it's memorable. Remember it. It had, it has a Mick Jagger, you know, and these people. But what just, what happened? What's it about? Well, it's a tough film to, that's not an easy answer. You mentioned the moment of Chaz and Turner in bed together. There's such a huge theme of homoeroticism going through the entire movie. Was that pretty typical for Camel's work, or was this one-off? You know, it appears. I mean, it appears in, in White of the Eye, and there is that relationship, Christopher Walken and, and Wildside. Again, I wouldn't say it's a persistent theme, although it is exploring that identity issue, you know, because he wrote of a lot of other stuff that didn't have that, you know, that never got made. So of the films that we know, the films that he completed, that is there, at least we would say, at least in some degree in the three of the four, that it's actually there. But again, that, that homoerotic subtext is in point blank, too. When, for instance, we're first introduced to the John Vernon character in that room full of men, and he runs after the Lee Marvin character, and they're down on the floor, and he's, he's laying on top of him, and he's straddled. You know, and he's holding his face. I mean, that's all pretty obvious, you know. And again, I think that there's a clearly influence. That homoerotic element is is very much a part of Point Blank, too. 
Is it true that Marlon Brando was originally supposed to play Chaz? Early on in one of those treatments, I think he was considered. I think that's partly, you know, and I, that's a good question because I think in part probably Donald Camel had that new Brando. That might have been what allowed that project to keep moving forward was that, you know, Brando was was interested in the film. They tried to work together later. I would say several times, but a few times they, they tried to. There were projects that they were going to make together and never did. Uh, but yes, early on, Brando was, you know, what they had, in, you know, the producers Donald had in mind for Chaz. Yes. That's a totally different film, too, isn't it? If he would have been. <laughs> it's amazing, though, that the film has held on that long. And I think it's those mysteries that it got those mysteries in it. You know, it's 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 not an easy film to to dismiss. And it's just very original in so many ways and editing and theme. It's like a Rorschach. Each succeeding age sort of reads something else in it. And I think that's that's very true. There's so many interesting aspects, you know. You know, there's the whole Borges, you know, the, the fact that one of the gangsters is reading Borges' personal anthology. And, you know, Turner later, Turner Jagger later reads El Sur, the South, you know, in that passage in the kitchen, he's reading to Anita Pallenberg, you know. But, you know, if you turn if, if you turn past the South and you, you know, you, you move one story further in that collection, right, what follows it is Borges' rumination on, on identity and, and migration, transmigration. That is the enigma of Edver, Edmund Fitzgerald. And that even has the line in it, you know, and that's the Edmund Fitzgerald was this wealthy recluse, right, who in, you know, Greek and Latin and, and uh, ancient literature. And there is a line in it, in, in the enigma of Ed, Edmund Fitzgerald, where Borges writes, right, from the, from the Spanish, meaning Edmund Fitzgerald, the poet. You know, we all know him through the, the rubiot of Omar Khayyam. But he's speculating on the origin of that, the Rubia, that is Borges. And he says, this is a virtual quote, from the Spanish, he'd gone on to Persian, right? Well, gee whiz, where, where does that note come from in performance, right? Gone to Persia. You read Borges' story about Edmund Fitzgerald believing that the spirit of Omar Khayyam had been through time and transmigration, inhabited him. And that's where the, the Rubaiyat came from, right? Was that he was Omar Khayyam in a previous life. And so you have that whole mystery of transmigration, right? And gone to Persia is the real key, right? I mean, it's just virtually a quote out of Borges. What does it mean, gone to Persia? Well, continue reading Borges. You'll find out what he's talking about. And, and then we have those, you know, sort of, lovely slides, you know, because we know they're, they're, what do you call it? Is it stereoscope or, a, you, know, you know, where they're looking at slides, you know, through that, you know, I had one as a kid, right? But put slides in it. They look three-dimensional. Like a Viewmaster. Yeah, like a Viewmaster. They're looking through the Viewmaster and we see those, which seem to have a kind of interesting setting like a like a like a what they used to call Persia or some middle oriental middle eastern location for those 
for those slides, you know. So there's that, right? It's got that that whole mystery of identity and transmigration that that interested Borges. Well, why is it in performance? Why is Borges so so featured, right? Well, it's not just because, you know, Turner reads from the South, you know, it's because I think it had a story that very much interested Donald Campbell. What are you working on these days? I have a crazy idea. I've always loved and that is Koyana Scotsi. And now it's 40 years old, you know, and it seems like, oh, well, yeah, so that film was. But, you know, in my teaching career, many times I was fortunate enough to teach a course, among others I did, teach religion and film. And, you know, you can think of immediately, you can think of, uh, you know, Brisson and, and uh, you know, Boonwell and and other filmmakers, which which I did, but and and other other kinds of films as well. But it occurred to me that Quinescotti is a religious film. How? Why do I say that? Well, because what is what what is a simple definition of a religious film? It's a film that that approves or praises, let's say, praises or condemns certain ways of being in the world. Well, that's what that film does. I'd like to write, and I don't think this is a major, massive, probably on the order of, say, my Man Who Fell to Earth book, you know, just a monograph on Koyonoskazi. And I have a publisher in mind. I'm not going to mention the publisher, but I do have a publisher in mind who primarily does religious texts and actually has done some, some, some published some books on religion and film. So they say they have a film series, but I only see certain... I mean, there's a couple of them. One's on uh, Rupert Hughes, Souls for Sale, uh, and looks at the early, um, you know, and this is in the 20s, and looks at the religious, the state of religion in America at that time, through from the turn of the century up through when that film was made. So those kinds of things. But I've never seen one that specifically focuses on a, on a particular film. I mean, what, what could you do, for instance, if you wrote, on Ohazard Balthazar, right? What would that be? Or Boonwell's Nazarene. I mean, what would that book be? That interests me right now. That's where I've kind of been thinking about, man, I, because I've always loved teaching that that religion and film class. Well, thank you so much for your time. This has been so great talking with you, as always. This is fun. I always want to talk about performance. So thanks so much for giving me an opportunity. Before we even start to talk about David Litvinoff, I want to know more about Kieran Pym. Can you tell me a little bit more about you and your background? Well, I'm a newspaper journalist by training. I had about a decade working on my local paper here in Norfolk, England. It's called the Eastern Daily Press. And during that time, I did some occasional bits of work for uh, national newspapers as well. I was mainly a, a feature writer focusing on arts, books, music, and doing lots of interviews with people as well, celebrity interviews or local characters. And so out of that, really, um, I, after a time, I started thinking I'd like to do something more than a 2,000-word spread in the paper and started trying to use the 
some of the skills I developed in interviewing and storytelling to try to write this book about this extraordinary character who I, I stumbled upon while re- just reading books about 60s London, really. And then the book about David Lipfnoff kind of developed from there, really. Uh, and I teach at the university here as well. Um, like 99% of writers, I don't really make my living through the books themselves. You know, I, it's um, teaching and editing and proofreading and all the kind of associated stuff. But yeah, I, I'm lucky enough to have got myself into a position where I, you know, around those things, I can write my books as well. And it's, it's all working pretty well. You mean they didn't just back up the Brinks truck with all the money when you first published your first book? If I ever thought it worked like that, I was swiftly disabused of my illusions. <laughs> well, actually, my first book was, um, or it wasn't the first I was working on. I was working on the Lipfanoff book. But after a little while, my literary agent heard that a publisher wanted to publish a book about dinosaurs, which is the kind of the anomaly on my my literary CV, if you like. People say, Joseph Roth, David Lipfanoff, and dinosaurs and I was like, yeah so i got asked if i wanted to write this kind of popular science book about dinosaurs and i did that it, and it was great fun and it didn't really sell very much in the uk but it got taken on by a great new york indie press called the experiments publishing it's done well in in, in the us they kind of they managed to get its stocks coast to coast and um Insofar as anyone in, in the US has kind of vaguely heard of me, it's possibly more likely to be for Dinosaurs, the Grand Tour, uh, than my David Lipfanoff book. Um, but yeah, so that book, um, insofar as I've made money from, from selling, from writing books, it's actually the Dinosaurs book more than any of the others. How did you go about finding more about Lipfanoff? Because he seems like such an interesting character and he's had his fingers in so many different things. It must have just been so difficult to even start to separate out the fiction from the truth. It was, yeah. Um, I guess I found that the harder I worked, the more I researched, I started to be able to solidify the kind of central truths of his story. And for someone like him, who was such a myth maker, such a self-fictionalizer, there were always going to be bits that you thought, I just don't know if I can, if that was complete fantasy or whether that's true or not. But having various people telling you the same stories in ways, a narrative spine that is based on significant overlaps in people's accounts. So the key to it really was journalistic legwork which was getting out and interviewing as many people as I could find. So in the end, read the mission to him, where there's a chapter by Ian Sinclair. One of the things he says is that there's barely anyone left who remembers him. And a great fascinating thing about him is that everyone who knew him was either burnt out or had died or had gone mad or whatever, which was um, a beguiling romantic story, but it didn't turn out to be true. Actually, a bit of journalistic legwork proves that there were plenty of people out there who remembered him. And in, in the end, I think I interviewed about 105 people. And that's was from every corner of his life. It was members of his family. It was people from the rock and roll world and from the criminal underworld and from the kind of loose bohemian aristocratic world. And in London in the, in the sixties, particularly, 
these worlds all intersected. And if you think of a Venn diagram, where those circles all overlap, Litvinov is in the overlap of all those circles. There's the fine art world as well, which intersects with, with all those circles too. As you say, he, he had fingers in all of these pies. He, he knew people from all of these different worlds, and so many of them were brought together through his activities in London in the 50s and 60s. So I found that through digging around and just, you know, you talk to one or two people and you get on well with them and you kind of win them over and they think, okay, this this guy is taking the subject seriously and we feel like he's hopefully going to do a half-decent job. And they become the kind of gatekeeper to a, a network of further contacts who in turn will put you in touch with more people. And before you know it, the whole quest has developed its own momentum and you know, corners turn into corners. I think the phrase that I used in the book was that the quest took on a kind of fractal diversification or something. Branches that sprout more branches that sprout more branches. And before you know it, you've talked to 100 or so people and, and actually your issue is what to leave out. <laughs> and your editor is telling you, sorry, you, you've got to lose 50,000 words or whatever, <laughs> which was not a problem I imagined at the beginning. Something happens along the way where suddenly the dilemma is not how to amass the material, but how to condense it. How does he even become David Litvinov? Because wasn't he born David Levy? So one of the very first people I spoke to was his half-brother, Emmanuel Litvinov, who was very elderly by then. He was 94, 95. He would die a year or two later. And I felt really privileged to, to speak with him because I mean, he was a pretty eminent writer and an Anglo-Jewish author, but he did not like his younger half-brother at all. David was like the black sheep of the family. And one of the ways in which he became the, the, um, the, the black sheep of the family was by, without any reference to his older half-brothers, stealing their surname. <laughs> so yeah, he was, he was born, he was born David Levy, but he preferred the surname Litvinov, which was rather more romantic and unusual. And he decided, yeah, I think I'll have that. I'll be, I'll be a Litvinov. And to his, Quite well-to-do older half-brothers, he kind of besmirched their uh, respectable family name. Yeah, he didn't care about that. He thought, yeah, I'll have that name. And it was all part of this kind of process of self-reinvention that he embarked upon from, I would say, the 1950s onwards. He left the East End of London, which was largely where London's Jewish community was based around that time although it was beginning to dissipate a little bit and head north and head further out east. But he decided he wanted to head west into, into West London, Soho, and then Chelsea, and to head to these kind of more exciting, in the case of Soho, or more refined and respectable, in the case of Chelsea, Knightsbridge, Mayfair, those kind of areas. So heading to those kind of areas and really trying to redo himself, reinvent himself, he scrubbed off his East End Cockney accent and through listening to LPs of you know, very well-spoken actors such as Laurence Olivier, he would listen to, to these LPs, one of his brothers told me, until he'd got the voice just so, and that became his, his preferred voice. He changed his name from Levy to Litvinov. You know, he tended to often to dress very well and became this very well-spoken 
bohemian character who was distinctly different from the cockney Jewish boy who had grown up and you know, around Hackney in, in the 30s and 40s. So it was a remarkable, you know, very self-conscious reinvention. I suppose the other thing to say, though, was that it wasn't entirely, partly it was a, just the pleasure of, the kind of actor's pleasure of self-invention, but also if you were A, Jewish in an anti-Semitic environment, and B, gay in a society where it was still illegal, if you were both of those things put together, then you couldn't just be yourself. A certain amount of reinvention, of acting, of performing, performance, it's not just a kind of an actor's pleasure, it was an absolute necessity. And I think that's the first thing to understand about, about Lipfnoff and understanding how he became the personality that he was and how he was so influential in shaping performance. Because one of the things I say in the book was performance as a film derived very directly from his own life as a performer, a life of performance with a lowercase p, which was something that came out of being gay and Jewish when it was extremely difficult to be either, let alone both. Being gay at that time, you're kind of forced into the underworld, but he becomes more of a figure of the underworld when it comes to being kind of a gangster. How does he get involved with that? I'm not sure that I ever identified a precise moment where I could say from here on he, he's from parts of the underworld, but he was knocking around with, you know, he was kind of a, a street kid in the, in the 30s and 40s, it seems he didn't know the Cray twins at that point, but only after he had kind of moved over to West London and so had they, and that's when they started crossing paths. As you say, being gay in that era, it wasn't really a choice. You were forced into associating in illicit spaces, I guess. So gay men and gangsters and kind of dotty bookkeepers and all sorts of people, you know, kind of living in this shady demimonde. It was inevitable that he would start rubbing shoulders with gangsters. He didn't want to be respectable, and there was something of the frisson of, of knocking around with people that he found very enlivening and exciting. And he was someone with an extremely short attention span. This is one of the reasons why he could never, for example, turn his intellectual and literary talents into anything more substantial than writing letters or, as we've seen with performance, contributing substantially to the script, but walking around in Donald Camel's flat, spieling away while Camel kind of wrote things down. He had a very short attention span, and he was someone who, whenever he got bored, he wanted to kind of throw everything up in the air and make life exciting again. So... He was very much about risk and about excitement and never letting the dust settle. And he had that incredibly dynamic personality, which really energized the people around him. In the book, I liken him to Neil Cassidy. I think he was a bit like a kind of London Beats figure who played a similar role to, um, to the people, for the people around him, particularly with regard to performance and Donald Camel as Neil Cassidy did for Kerouac and Ginsberg and people around him, where, you know, similar thing, they had an incredible energy, you know, sexually omnivorous, incredibly charismatic and mesmerizing in the way they spoke, used their whole bodies as they spoke, you know, real performers, real storytellers. 
but could barely get the words down on the page themselves. You know, both men wrote great letters, but could never really quite become the literary figures that they rather hoped to be. But they had a distinct, profound influence on people around them. How did he meet the craze? I'm not sure I ever identified that exactly, but they were in contact by the late 50s, early 60s around West London. Um, it may have been, I'm trying to remember now, I think it may have come out of the gambling parties that they all had an interest in. This was again before gambling was fully legalized. And you had these chemin, chemin de fer kind of you know, card playing gambling parties where it was another space where the aristocracy and the underworld would intersect and artists who were kind of addicted to risk as well. And people like Lucian Freud, Francis Bacon, who were big gamblers. Lipfloff was a big gambler. The Cray twins knew that there was money to be made out of gambling. And there were these, so these all-night card-playing parties that Lipfloff had an involvement in organising and then taking a, a cut from. The Cray twins were involved in these as well. And then... One of the key moments certainly was around a nightclub called Esmeralda's Barn, which was in the fifties was somewhere where the young aristocrats uh, would hang out, and Litvinov used to, to knock around with them there. In the early sixties, the Cray twins acquired that club at a, a kind of knockdown price, shall we say, after applying a little bit of pressure on on the owner, a man named Stefan de Fay, who. It was made quite clear to him that it would be in his best interests to sell to them if he knew what was good for him. So the Crays acquired this this casino and nightclub, and Lipfnoff was a regular there. So they got to know him there, and the other big connection was that there was a young man named Bobby Buckley, who Ronnie Cray fancied, and David Lipfnoff fancied they were both infatuated with this this young man, uh, who was kind of part of the Cray's criminal firm, not one of the main players, but someone who was associated with them. But he was Lipfnoff's boyfriend, but Ronnie Cray wanted him, and there was a lot of kind of tussling and vying for well, a lot of rivalry over this young man. They basically fell out. Ronnie Cray and David Lipfnoff fell out horribly over this this figure. Lipfnoff continued to make passes at him at Bobby Buckley, even once he had become Ronnie Cray's boyfriend, which was you know, a crazy thing to do. Absolutely insane if you if you didn't want to get into an awful lot of trouble. There was this horrible incident that I describe in the book where Lipfnoff was outside Earl's Court's underground station and he's just putting his coat on and then a, a man comes out of the crowd and slashes him across the mouth with a cutthroat razor leaving him with scars kind of jutting from the sides of his mouth. Um, and this was a way of um, warning him, you've been talking too much and keep away from Ronnie Cray's boyfriend as well. Because he was someone who was, he could never stop talking. Obviously, that's the worst possible sin, really, in, in the underworld where you know, information has its price and you don't just go around blabbing to everyone you meet about what your gangster friends are up to. But Litvinoff was incorrigible and... Was just, you know, was always telling stories about them, passing on gossip about them. On the one hand, the Crays kind of liked the fact that he was acting like their PR man, 
spreading their legend far and wide. They traded in fear, and he acted as someone who spreads their reputation around London. And people like Donald Camel, for example, couldn't get enough of these jaw-dropping stories about the nefarious activities of Ronnie and Reggie Cray. But when it came to saying things that got back to, say, rival criminals, that was obviously not so wise and not what they wanted at all. And he just couldn't stop talking. He got into a lot of bother with them, really. But you know, the other really important thing that happens around that time and coming out of the same scene is that he ran up huge gambling debts at Esmeralda's barn and couldn't afford to repay them. And he was terrified. He, you know, he thought, who knows what they're going to do to me. He, he knew what they did to people who owed the money and didn't pay it back. He finally, he confessed to Ronnie and Reggie, I'm sorry, I just don't know how to repay these debts. And um, so what they did was they took his flat off him. This flat in Knightsbridge, it became a kind of a hiding place for gangsters on, on the run. And so we can see there in the reality of David Lipfenoff's dealings with the Cray Twins, one of the seeds of, of the performance plot where a gangster goes on the run and hides away in, in this place in West London. It feels like he was embedded in that whole world of like Keith Richards and Mick Jagger and Donald, Donald Campbell and just that fascination that entertainers had with gangsters at that time. Is that a, a true statement? I think that's very true, yeah. People like the Rolling Stones who were basically you know, lower middle class boys from Kent, which is your listeners may or may not know, but it's a county kind of bordering on to southeast London and kind of going into the suburbs of southeast London. But they were not really tough London boys. You know, they, they were kind of... Mick Jagger was at the London School of Economics trying to decide whether to pursue an academic career or to throw in his lot with his musical ambitions. And, you know, they were fascinated by an authentic look frightening, kind of real, gritty London. And Lipfnoff was a conduit to that world. He was a real conduit, a kind of authentic underworld London that people like the Rolling Stones were very excited by, but it wasn't their own world. They wanted to know more about it. They wanted something of that danger to rub off on them. You know, it's really good as their, for their reputations as the bad boys of British rock and roll. But it wasn't actually their world, but Litvinov was their kind of guide, their tour guide into that world. So for a while, he was very important to them. So how does he get involved with performance? Or is it just, again, that kind of circle all knowing each other? I think it's important to say that he and Donald Camel went back a long way. Donald Camel knew Litvinov at least from the 50s. Um, I think it's probably back to the mid to late 40s. And there was a quote from him that I used in my book where he recalls, I used to go around with David Lipfenoff as a teenager. We hung around Soho together when I was still going to school. David was, apart from me, the most important person involved in the movie. Well, Donald Camel was born in 1934. So if he was a teenager and still at school, it would have been, yeah, it would have been the late 40s that they first crossed paths. But it's really from the 50s onwards that they started having a, a lot to do with each other. And again, it's that kind of West London, Chelsea, Mayfair world where Camel, being someone 
from a upper middle class background, an art school background, you know, a very talented artist, started as a society portraitist in the 1950s. Um, and he was moving in, in the kind of circles that Litvinov by then being six years older than him. Litvinov was born in 1928. Litvinov was already established in, in that world. Um, but so that, yeah, really from the early to mid fifties, they're really much part of one another's worlds. And then there was David Camel, who was Donald's younger brother, who was the associate producer on performance. And Donald, I never met. He know he killed himself some years ago. David only died a couple of years ago, and he was really important to my research seven, eight, nine years ago. And he had lots of stories about remembering Litvinov from well, throughout the 60s, but back to the 50s as well. And he remembered meeting him at a party, and well, he remembered meeting him outside the cinema before that, and David Camel being rather cold. And Litvinov um, saying, why, why aren't you wearing a coat? You look terribly cold. And then turning up very shortly afterwards, the beautiful kind of blue paisley patterned coat that he presented to David Camel, who received it very gratefully. And then he said, not too long after that, he went to a party and was wearing this coat. And a stranger at the party said, that's a lovely coat. I used to have one just like that, but it went missing. <laughs> Of course, David realised. I'm not sure that he gave it back. I'm, I don't really know, but but that was Litvinov. You know, he was um, among many other things. He was basically a bit of a thief, and he was a bit of an outlaw. And he likes to redistribute from you know people who he felt had enough. He would give it to the people who he felt were in need <laughs> without the first person's consent. So um, he saw himself as a bit of a Robin Hood figure in some ways. He's credited as what technical advisor and dialogue coach on performance. What kind of things did he do? It's all a little bit nebulous, but he, you know, he seems to have done a lots of different things that make their way into the film in some ways that are more obvious, some less so. So, I mean, for one thing, he was holed up in the flat with Donald Camel, contributing to a, re a rewrite of the scripts. It's all a, a bit murky, but there's various lines in the scripts that people say, oh, that sounds just like Litvinov, whether it's the kind of Pinteresque dialogue while the chaps are forcibly shaving the chauffeur's head while he's tied to a chair in the garage. And, you know, that's, that kind of exchange of dialogue has a kind of very similar quality to the way that Litvinov would speak kind of clipped, aggressive, needling kind of speech, which again is you know, very much like uh, Harold Pinter as well. The set builder credited Litvinov with being very good on the kind of details that someone like Harry Flowers would have had in his bedroom, sort of come headquarters, the colours, the decor, the ashtrays, the telephone, things like that. He said Litvinov helped to, to get those details right. I mean, the stories that he told people like Donald Camel about the craze activities, which went into the plot in a really quite explicit way. I mean, that's some um, dialogue consultant and technical advisor. Feels like a very euphemistic term for you know, what was basically in many ways just, you know, shaping the plot. But he did also do things like helping James Fox to, to get his 
his accents right, making sure the vocabulary was right, making sure that Fox was dressed appropriately, so taking him to the same tailor that the gangsters would have used. I think it was Cecil G on Shaftesbury Avenue. Putting him in touch with people from the Thomas A. Beckett pub on the Old Kent Road, which was it was a boxing pub. I mean, it was a pub where there was a boxing gym upstairs. The famous British heavyweight Henry Cooper, who had some great fights with Muhammad Ali, for example, he trained upstairs at the Thomas A. Beckett's. So it was a very kind of rough and ready, but also, I was going to say a very rough and ready pub, but it was also somewhere that was, that southeast London is like to be seen of a nice house. You know, it had its own glamour, but it was, you know, somewhere where gangsters would go, but the dress ups would go there. You know, it was, it was a significant meeting point in London, kind of working class stroke underworld culture in London in the sixties. So Lipfanoff, Put James Fox in touch with people there. Johnny Shannon, who plays Harry Flowers, he was someone from that scene around the Thomas of Beckett. And Fox got to know various of the kind of lively young men who were involved in varying degrees of criminality who, who knocked around that pub. And I interviewed him a couple of times. He was fantastic. He was such a lovely man. He was kind of very generous as an interviewee. But he said, I'm not just making this up. I really don't remember very well what I, what I got up to. You know, there are these stories that he went out possibly on a housebreaking raid or kind of, you know, various illicit activities with gangsters he got to know. He said he genuinely couldn't remember, but he said actually in a way that was beside the point because what was so important to his creation of Chaz Devlin was not the facts, not the... It wasn't about being a copycat of a gangster. It was about inhabiting the gangster's mindset and associating with the people Litvinov put him in touch with enabled him to do that creative work in his head. And whether he was actually going out on housebreaking raids or whatever was actually not the point, as he saw it. The name of your book is Jumping Jack Flash, David Litvinov and the Rock and Roll Underworld. Did they really write Jumping Jack Flash about him? They didn't, no, but he liked less on that they did. The reason I ended up calling the book that was, well, there's a couple of reasons, I guess, but one was that the phrase does completely embody his dynamism, his electricity. He was such an enlivening, electrifying character. Two, he was someone who was really substantially connected to the Rolling Stones, and he liked less on that. They've written this song about him. And the fact that they didn't, you know, I looked into it and actually it, you know, they gave their own very plausible. Keith Richards talks about, I think it's the gardener at Redlands, his, his home, who he kind of nicknamed Jumping Jack Flash. It kind of came from there. But Lipfanoff liked to tell this story. And the fact that he told this story that on the one hand was very true of him. It said something about who he was, about his personality and about his connection with the Rolling Stones, but also was factually inaccurate, seems to me a really neat encapsulation of who he was. It was both true and untrue. And that was one of the things that is kind of the heart of his character and what I was trying to dig into in the book, these places where facts and fiction kind of entwine with each other and it's very hard to pick them apart. So it felt like a, you know, it felt 
like uh, every pertinent title for the book. It also, in a purely commercial sense, it enables someone who hasn't heard of him, which is frankly you know, 99% of the kind of reading public, to say, okay, but I can see that he's connected to these people we have heard of. And when you're writing a book about someone no one's ever heard of, sometimes you have to at least get them to pick the book up off the shelf before they start looking at it and realizing that he's interesting in his own right. So was it a little easier to write about Joseph Roth, or was it just a different type of difficult? It was many different types of difficult. I would say it was harder in in various ways, actually, because whereas with Lipfanoff, I ended up having so many people I spoke to who remembered him. With Roth, I was told at the beginning there was no one who remembered him. But I was really pleased I found one person, a lovely man named Dan Morgenstern, who was a very eminent jazz writer. Um, he's 93 now, I think. But his father, Soma Morgenstern, was a great friend of, of Joseph Roth's. And in October 1938, in Paris, Soma Morgenstern and Joseph Roth were living for a while in the same hotel. Dan Morgenstern went to visit his dad, aged eight, nearly nine years old, and at that time met Joseph Roth and was able to tell me all these decades later this lovely little recollection of of meeting this man who you know who died so long ago, died in nineteen thirty nine. But telling Roth's story was so much harder because I couldn't go out and do what I really like doing, which is meeting people, interviewing them, trying to piece together a story that way. I couldn't do as much the footstepping kind of geographical risk that I like to do because just when I was getting going on that, the pandemic came along and I had to do a lot of it remotely, sitting here in Norwich instead of wandering around Vienna or Berlin as I as I hoped to. I mean, I did in the end. I I got to Ukraine, I got to Paris, and I got to Amsterdam before and after the pandemic. But it was all a little bit hectic, really. It's just a very different book to write, really. I love both books in different ways. But yeah, I suppose the other huge difficulty was that you know, Roth wrote and spoke in German, and I'm not a scholar of German. So I'm, with a tutor, I managed to get my German to a reasonable level, but I was having to work very closely hand-in-hand with my tutor and, and with translators to make sure that I've got things right. So it was very laborious in that respect. So I'm rather looking forward to whatever I may do next. And I don't quite know what that's going to be, but whatever it is, I think it will be something closer to the kind of lip and off direction again, um, where I can move a little more freely. <laughs> yeah, it'll be something probably connected with London history again, I think. I was going to say, what other self-mythologizing Jewish artist might be out there? I'm sure there's got to be some more. Someone was telling me I should do a trilogy of kind of self-mythologizing, self-loathing Jews. But I thought, you know what, I think um, I think I could get pigeonholed. And also, <laughs> these people are fascinating, but they drive you absolutely mad. Yeah, I'm going to do something different next. I just don't quite know what yet. <laughs> Aaron, where's a good place for people to keep up with you and your work? Well, I have a website, www.kieranpin.co.uk, K-E-I-R-O-N-P-I-N.co.uk, which I'm actually in the process of overhauling. And so hopefully soon it's going to be an all-new, fully up-to-date website. If anyone looks at it in the very near future, then it will be looking slightly dated, but soon it's going to be 
all singing, all dancing, and fully up to speed again. It's, if anyone wants to look there, I have a contact form, and I always love hearing from anyone who's who's read the book or has any questions or whatever. So, well, Kieran, thank you so much for your time. This has been great. Well, Mike, it's my absolute pleasure. Thank you for asking me, and yeah, it's it's good fun to to start thinking around this extraordinary film performance. And um, I hope your podcast brings new insight to people who, who already know the film well and introduces this incredible film to people who don't know us already because they've got a trace on their hands. There's a tramp sitting on my doorstep Trying to waste his time All right, we are back and we are talking about performance and there's still a little bit more to talk about here. Um, ben, I know you had a whole lot of topics listed off in the uh, the notes here. Did you want to kind of start to go through this one? Well, I feel like we've covered a lot of it already. There's a, there's a kind of bunch of myths associated with the film. And I think part of the mystique of the film has often been the stories around the making of the film. One of the myths is around James Fox, uh, the idea that he became so immersed in the role of Chaz that he kind of got lost in the role and he had a nervous breakdown and he basically didn't act again for 10 years and he became a born-again Christian. He has given interviews where he said that there's some truth in that, but it's not completely true, but actually that when he made performance, he was beginning to become disillusioned with the kind of film star, movie star life and sort of see it as being slightly worthless and he was looking for something and becoming Chaz was part of that journey, uh, getting deeply immersed in that role and coming out of it and, and really struggling mentally after the filming was over and cutting himself off from the people that he'd been close to. I mean, he was really good friends with Camel and he was quite good friends with Mick although I think him and Mick had quite a tense time on the film. Uh, and then, you know, he does become a born-again Christian. There's a sort of group that he becomes involved in who's called the Navigators. More or less stops acting for about 10 years, and he sort of gradually comes back after that. The truth of it is he was sort of moving in that direction already, but acting in performance definitely kind of pushed him over the edge. The other myth about the film is that Nick Rogan, Donald Camel kind of fell out when they were, you know, it towards the end of the making of the film, although they didn't get on at all. I mean, that's, that's one story. Anita Pallenberg gave interviews where she said that they were not communicating very well on the set and that, you know, Nick would spend hours and hours and hours fiddling with the lights while Donald would talk to them very intellectually about what they were supposed to do. And then at the end, never the twain should meet. And they kind of all went off and did their own thing anyway. You know, Nick would come in and have no idea what Donald had told them. But actually, I think Nick said it certainly before he died that he actually got on really well with Donald. 
it was after the shoot was over, Nick went off to do walkabout. And then uh, he was sort of rather isolated from the post-production process. And, of course, that was very troubled because the studio was unhappy with the film. And, uh, and, and Nick was kind of out in Australia doing walkabout. And then when he came back, he was still kind of isolated from it. And I think there was definitely a period where he was a little unhappy and I think probably felt that Donald had taken over the film a bit too much. But essentially, I think they were on the same page. And I think that's rather exaggerated, the idea that those two fell out. I mean, they never did work together again, unfortunately. But, you know, Nick Rogue has spoke before he died with great fondness about Donald Camel. So I think that that tension has definitely been exaggerated. I mean, do you guys know some of these myths about the film? I mean, of course, the, the classic one is whether or not they were actually having sex, which is weird because that ends up being another... Uh, myth connected to another Nick Rogue film, which is don't look now. You know, it's kind of not many filmmakers have a career in which they make two films. Uh, you know, uh, we're excluding adult films, obviously, Mike, where people suspect the actors are having sex for real, and that's the case with Nick Rogue in two films. But I also believe that was a myth too—the idea that they were actually having sex. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but when I watched the film again, I hadn't seen it for a while. I found the sex scenes kind of weirdly tame in a way, apart from the opening one, which is kind of quite an unpleasant sequence. The 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 threesome with the um with the with the camera under the sheets, and then the scene later with uh, uh, Chaz and Lucy, they're rather sweet, I think. Uh, you know, and they and they're mostly just kind of foreplay, basically. They're they're they're. They're, you know, they're rather gentle scenes. They don't feel that explicit to me. I also think that's just very much a thing of a time, because I, look, this 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 was a movie that was coming out of a time when sex scenes were all about suggestion, closed doors, a, a scarf or a sweater being thrown over the back of a chair. That was a convention that was a one that filmmakers and film goers we're all familiar with for decades. So any movie that showed you more than that, any respectable movie, and on the one hand, it's really funny to use the word respectable to describe performance, but it was a movie by serious mainstream filmmakers that opened up in real mainstream movie theaters, certainly in the U.S. So the fact that the sex was a little bit more explicit than it might have been in movies made a couple of years earlier was something really startling just because you saw a little bit more flesh and a little bit more hands on breasts, on stomachs, on legs, on thighs, particularly on buttocks, was startling to people who were not expecting an exploitation movie, you know, the kind of thing that you would have to see in the naughty theater in your town, or you'd have to drive to see it in the naughty theater in the next town over. It was a movie being released by a major American film corporation that was playing real theaters. So I think expectations played a great deal into the perception of performance as being far more explicit than it actually was. It's ironic to me that Fox did take that break for a while and then he came back and I mean, I've seen him in so many things that I 
just kind of forget that it's actually him because he just looks a, a little bit different. Obviously, age uh, has its effects on all of us. But then that he ends up being in, to me, one of the better gangster films that came out in the, I can't remember if it was the, the early 2000s or the 1990s. It might have been 2000 itself, Sexy Beast, which, like, to me, that is one of those top tier, like, new gangster films that we have along with, you know, some of the Guy Ritchie films and some of those. But, well, really, two Guy Ritchie films, the rest of it, you can keep him and his filmography. But he seemed to work with Guy Ritchie a few times because he would also be in um, uh, one of the Sherlock Holmes films. So, I mean, he's still out there. He's still acting like mad. And, of course, when you cast James Fox in a gangster movie, I mean, that's in- inevitably a reference to performance. And I think that was definitely the case with Sexy Beast. Interestingly enough, Sexy Beast, which was a collaboration between Jonathan Glazer and two these two writers. And the two writers had become well-known for writing a play that was sort of about gangsterism that really clearly referenced performance. And it's a, it was a play called Gangster Number no. 1 that had been sort of a bit of a hit on the West End stage in London. And Glazer was an adaptation of it. And in the end, what happened was the writers... And Glazer walked away from the project. They were unhappy with the producer or with the way the producer was handling the project. I think there was a conflict about casting. So they left Gangster Number 1. It ended up getting made the same year as Sexy Beast. It was directed by Paul McGuigan and stars Paul Bettany as a young Chaz-like gangster. And if you have a look at it, you can watch the trailer online. You can see he's clearly modeled on the young James Fox and the whole look of Gangster Number no. One, which isn't a great film, is clearly an attempt to reproduce the aesthetics of the first 40 minutes of performance, but then sort of stretch it out into a feature-length film. Malcolm McDowell plays the, the titular Gangster Number no. One, and then Sexy Beast is a whole different thing, but that was the project that they ended up doing, and you know, I think there's very clearly performance references in Sexy Beast, and one thing that we haven't talked about, which connects up a bit with Sexy Beast, is language and the way that language is used as a weapon in performance. And that dialogue, you know, all the way through, you know, of course, the gangster sections in particular, but even later, you know, all the wordplay and the way that words change their meaning in the second half really is of a piece with that first half. And Sexy Beast is famous for that whole section with Ben Kingsley at the beginning when he's trying to persuade Ray Winston to do the job and he just won't take no for an answer. And it has that very sharp, heightened theatrical quality. And that all goes back to performance and, and, and the way that the gangsters use language to sort of insinuate, intimidate, and the banality of language, which takes on these very, very sinister overtones in, especially in that first half of the film. Well, that really reminds me of the scene when they're shaving the chauffeur's head and pouring acid all over the car. They, as they're shaving his head, I think it's Chaz is the one doing the shaving, and one of his mates is holding the, the chauffeur, and there's another one that's standing there. And the guy who's holding him, or one of the two guys, it keeps making jokes, and Chaz is not having it. You know, like he has gone from kind of happy-go-lucky Chaz to absolutely serious Chaz. And he just keeps yelling, shut up at this other guy. And just like, 
it, 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 I keep thinking like he's going to just reach up with that razor and slash his friend, you know, because he is not very happy at all with any of these puns or jokes that this other guy is doing. And it's such a strange moment for me. I think part of what we're talking about here is a difference between American and British use of language. And I don't want to say that Americans are all really lazy in the way they speak. And certainly American gangster movies rely on the internal language, the one that's the language of people who are within that business, that gangster business, and the way it's used to cut out people who are outside of it. But gotta say, I think that English movies overall are far more immersed in the subtleties of language, of accent, of the specific way in which people speak in specific situations, because there's a lot of vocal switching, I think, in England. The, the way you speak to one person, your boss is perhaps not the way you speak to your sister or your brother or the guy who runs the market down the street. And that's not untrue in America, but I think as a culture, we're a lot less aware of it. And so it's something that you always have to take into account, especially as an American, when you watch films made in the UK. All right, let's go ahead and take another break, and we're going to play a preview for next week's show. Meet Diabolic, a bank Robin Hood who baffles the cops. He robs from the rich to give to the girls. Master sports car racer. Master lover, Ask Eva. She can't get a good night's sleep unless she's covered with money. Diabolic, the absolute gold-plated end. Ask Eva. That's right, we'll be back next week with a look at another psychedelic head trip of a film. Uh, quite a different type, though. Danger Diabolique. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Ben and Maitland. So, Ben, what is happening with you, sir? You can find me on Twitter at Gone to Persia, you know, as long as Twitter keeps going. Uh, you know, I'm not there a lot, but it's a good place to reach out to me. If people are interested in St. Jack, you can come and you, you must go and listen to the Projection Booth podcast that I did 10 years ago with Mike on St. Jack, uh, which also features Peter Bogdanovich before he passed away. And then you can email me or contact me and ask me for my book about St. Jack, which is called Kind of Hot. So I'm still selling that all these years later. I'm currently writing maybe the long-awaited follow-up, which is my PhD, uh, which I'm currently working on, which is a creative nonfiction book called Lost Films. And that's all I'm going to say. But, you know, look out for that and follow me on social media if you want to learn more about what that's about. And Maitland, what's the latest with you? The latest with me is that I am still publishing my Substack newsletter called Vintage Gay Books, and that's Vintage Gay Books, 
www.vintagegayadultsubstack.com, which is about the wonderful world of vintage gay adult novels in the 1970s and a little bit into the 80s at the tail end of it, which were marvelous, uh, marvelous genre books that featured gay casts of astronauts, explorers of all kinds, detectives, everything you can imagine. And they are hugely entertaining, hugely informative, and very much of a period when there was almost no popular gay-oriented literature that included such characters. Well, thank you so much, folks, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. If you want to hear more of me shooting off my mouth, check out some of the other shows that I work on. They are all available at weirdingwaymedia.com. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projectionbooth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world. On a hot and dusty night We were eating eggs and sammies When the black man there drew his knife Oh, you drowned that Jew in Rampton As he washed his sleeveless shirt You know, that Spanish-speaking gentleman The one that we all call Kurt Come now, gentlemen I know that some mistake How forgetful I'm becoming now You I remember you in Hemlock Road, 1956. You're a faggy little leather boy with a smaller piece of stick. You were lashing, smashing, hunk of man. Your sweat shines sweet and strong. Your organ's working perfectly, but there's a part that's not screwed on. I want you at the Coke convention back in 1965. You're the Miss executive I see heavily advertised. You're the great, great man whose daughter licks policemen's buttons clean. You're the man who squats behind the man who works the soft machine. Come down, gentlemen, your love is all I crave. When I'm laughing Laughing in my
When the old men do the fighting And the young men all look on And the young girls eat their mother's meat From tubes of plastic corn Be wary, please, my gentle friends Of all the skins you breathe They have a tasty habit They eat the hands that bleed So remember who you say you are And keep your noses clean Boys will be boys And play with toys So be strong with your beast Oh Rosie dear Don't you think it's queer So stop me if you please The baby's dead My lady said You gentlemen 